This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. Yes, you made it another week. Congratulations. And you're that much closer to the day of love, the Valentine's Day. And if you work for the federal government, you must go to work today. Yeah. Sorry. It's not a day off. Last night you thought you didn't have to go to work today, but now you do. Uh, an overnight well, shutdown. Actually, they the uh, Department of well, Personnel, whatever it is for yeah. the, the government, they didn't even put out any sort of notice about uh, a possible shutdown because they everyone... By like 5 o'clock yesterday, everyone was, oh, this is going to get signed. There's no yeah. reason this isn't going to be signed. Very small window of an opportunity for the government to actually shut down. And then, of course, Rand Paul stood up and shut the government down. <laughs> Have you ever tried to pull that prank on anybody? Oh, Jim, by the way, you don't need to show up tomorrow. It's a day off. Yeah, I tried that. <laughs> that didn't work. And then Jim was fired. And then Jim lost his job, and then his family couldn't eat. Rand Paul does have a point, though. Rand Paul does. Yeah, his um, he's he's a, he. By the way, last night he was against everybody. Yeah, pretty was, much everybody else in Congress well, is. Yeah, but, and, and he makes a good point. They're all just the Republicans are spending money. For the last twenty years, Republicans have been yeah. against spending money. Now they're spending money. He's well, like, "What are yeah. we doing?" Except they've always kind of been, even under Bush, they were spending a lot of money. But, I love sure, spending money. They're they're always talking against the you know yeah that, that's their claim is that yeah they're they're the, supposed to be fiscal conservatives, small so, government. They want small government, and they just made government bigger. But so, but he can't. He's just sitting taking them all on. Yeah, that's what he does. I wonder what the people of Kentucky like, think. Like. Other other uh, members of the leg- of uh, Congress were calling him Don Quixote. Oh yeah, because he's fighting an yeah, endless fighting battle. The windmills, yeah. the windmills. You know, it's because well, um, he wore a funny hat. Well, that too. Yeah, and, and he's got a sidekick <laughs> named Poncho. <laughs> I think it's all of that. But um, I guess in the end, big. It's a big deal because it's a bipartisan agreement. Sixty Republicans, I guess, well, didn't sign. Yeah, sixty-seven, I believe. So the Democrats had to pull it through for him, and the Democrats waited. Of course they In did. the House, because they waited to see what the Republicans were going to do. They probably also had to wait to find out if Pelosi made it through her eight-hour diatribe. Oh, Ooh, that, was, yeah. that was the other day. Yeah, I know, but she's still probably down. She stood up only for ten minutes yesterday to complain about that. <laughs> My voice hurts so bad. So, man. It's like Rand Paul forced the government shutdown. People are calling it the stupidest shutdown in the history of shutdowns. But, but most, didn't people, need to most people didn't even know it happened. So the government officially shut down for five hours. I mean, at 12.01, they couldn't make a decision, so it shut down until 5 in the morning or yeah. whatever, and then, and then they got a bill passed. At, uh, I actually have the, the AP bulletins that I had on oh, my yeah. phone this morning. At 1.53 Eastern, Senate passed two-year budget deal, 71.28, moves on to the House. Hmm. At 5.33 a.m., the House narrowly passes a bipartisan budget deal. Hold on. How does the House do that? Do they call in their vote? What do you mean? No, the, they the all stayed. House showed They're up there. They're all there at 5 in the morning. You know, no one that, went home. That's why it was passed between midnight and 5, because there's no takeout that's still open that's by right. then. The, we the, are starving. The other th- <laughs> I think the Senate is going on recess. Of course. So like nobody left because they're all waiting to get out of town, and we still got to keep the government open. How Rant, many recesses do we get? No, I'm zero. Okay. Well, 
elected officials need to go home and talk to their constituents but the slash go is, on vacation. They don't come home and talk to us. How many times do they come home and talk to you? They have town hall meetings, but what they choose to do, at least my representative, is she has um, a select list of people who are supporters. She calls them in individually, and they have one-on-one discussions oh, with each voter. That's a great way to do instead it, Instead of talking then to the people who didn't vote ear. for her. <laughs> so it's kind of a fun fun process of governing. Nobody wants half an ear. So they passed the bill. De- uh, did. Rand Paul delays it past midnight. The legislation only funds the government through March 23rd. Hold on. Uh, yeah. But two years from now. Well, it's a two-year budget, but the government's funded through the 23rd. So they got to do another – and it says this will be the – they'll have to pass oh. what lawmakers hope is the final spending bill of fiscal 2018 in March. Oh, I thought it was good for two years. All done. No. Signed, sealed, delivered. That's where I was confused too because it seemed temporary the way they were doing it. But they have this two-year – but it, the two-year is domestic spending – and funding mm. uh, the military for two years. You know what's nothing's more boring than this topic. <laughs> it's so boring, <laughs> but it, it locked the government up right for five hours. Well, and for five months, for five months, well, this yeah. was a beating stick that they would beat each other up with. The Democrats had them because you know the GOP is supposed to be running the government. And as uh, John Thune, Republican senator, it is a colossal waste of time what Rand Paul did. They could have had this done by. Like nine o'clock yesterday, but Rand Paul just Thanks, kept going. Rand. But Rand is standing up for all of these, um, the Tea Partiers, right? Isn't Basically, that what it, like, and like he's small not, government. Don't yeah. He's, don't well, he's point, he's more pointing debt. out the hypocrisy of it all. Yeah, right. that we're creating more debt, but you you guys, the Republicans, everyone's are, running want on small it. government. But you had Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul signing off on expanding government. You had uh, uh, what the Democrats in the Senate are, are signing on to this. The Democrats in the House weren't because Nancy Pelosi wants a DACA debate. Yeah. And that's not going to be part of this. But uh, Paul Ryan says there will be a debate here in the next few weeks on that issue. Boy. Just not right now. We got to fund the government. <sighs> I'd rather be talking about the Olympics. Yeah, if you wanted to get up at 6 Eastern to watch the opening ceremonies. Uh, By the way, let me just say this, and then we'll give you the headlines. Um, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence and Kim Jong-un's sister are sitting about six people away from each other during the opening ceremonies. No eye contact? No Uh, acknowledgement of existence? No eye contact, but there was a handshake, apparently, between North and South Korea with uh, sister Kim Jong-un's little sister. Really? Yeah. I think her name is... Um, Jung something. I, I read it yesterday. Jungs de Leon. There you go. I don't know Not even is. close. With a thick accent? Up. I don't know. That was like Ponce de Leon. Um, and <laughs> wow. she apparently shook the hand of uh, the South Korean leader. and which President is, Moon. Wow. Which is like a, this is a major th- event. Is it possible she didn't know who he was? Oh, they know. And apparently uh, Mike Pence uh, shared his popcorn with uh, Sister Un. Sister Un. I hope it wasn't stale because that could start things. This is amazing stuff happening already in the opening ceremonies. Already. But Pence isn't going to let the propaganda happen. No. But but there, there is a picture of them really close to each other. That's one of the riskiest things to share food-wise because popcorn. some people like salt, some people like butter, Ugh. some people like the kettle corn or like the, the different flavored salts. Yeah. It's risky. Yeah. 
You've thought a lot about it. By the way, we'll have a lot of that kind of uh, insight uh, in hour number three <laughs> of the program as we get to the movies and launch your weekend. Now let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention For to? For your non-budget news, also the stock market dropped 1,000 points yeah, yesterday for the huge. second time. So people are concerned. Thanks, Mr. But, Trump. <laughs> but again, that doesn't affect the vast majority of the country because people aren't in the stock market. Uh, President Trump called former White House Chief of Staff and Republican National Committee Chair Reince Priebus to complain about the job performance of Reince. successor John Kelly, the New York Times reported Thursday. The Times quoted people close to the president saying that Trump phoned several people, including his former chief of staff, to complain about Kelly's performance after the chief of staff was the center of criticism over the White House response to allegations of domestic abuse leveled at Rob Porter, a former White House aide. Kelly's initial support for Porter has been criticized by lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, including Republican Senator Joe Kennedy, who said Thursday that Kelly made a, quote, bad decision. Yeah. You know what's weird about that whole thing? How many times, though, have you not known something about your coworker? Right. And Ooh, then well, all of a sudden you're like, hold it. You, that's the, you're in Amway? That, <laughs> you crochet? That's, I didn't know The interesting that. part is they apparently knew a long time ago that there yeah. were these allegations. He still doesn't well, have a security clearance because of it. Right. I mean, the FBI investigated him. The FBI him. investigated him because, and they found all this yeah. information. So You would know. When did John Kelly know? They, the White House originally said he found out when the Daily Mail published it, uh, the story, I believe, on Wednesday. Yeah. That's when he found out for the first time. And now it's coming out that maybe he knew in November, maybe he knew before that, and yeah, it's kind of yeah, looking bad. that's the problem. Tell the truth. By the way, they, they finally did, for the first time, I think, tell the truth that they actually came out and said, we could have handled this better. Right. Like, that, that is an amazing admission. Well, that guy might get in trouble. He's the backup He's press probably, secretary. Yeah, he probably so lost he might, his job. He might get in trouble for admitting fault. Right. Uh, there are other reasons why Trump won't fire John Kelly. The president needs and trusts Kelly, one official assures CNN. Axios says Trump is still impressed by Kelly's toughness, four-star general status, doesn't think the scandal has touched him personally, and doesn't have a obvious replacement of mind. Kelly's job is safe for one kind of strange reason. He hates his job. Wow. That mm. changes Trump's calculus, a source close to Trump reports, but Trump also doesn't appear to have the stomach to do what he normally does when he's fed up with people, the source uh, says. He usually makes their lives miserable, publicly humiliates them, but now he's up against somebody who doesn't care and would happily leave. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, that's how you hold him. That's how you kind of keep your stock price up. So it's not like he's going to fight. Care. He's not going to fight for the job, so the fun's mm. gone. How can you humiliate somebody if they're not going to? Play the game, I guess. <laughs> that's the that's the story. We need we need Kelly in there. Do we? Yeah. Who would it be as replacement? Yeah, that's the other problem is they don't have as, as people are leaving. Even the the Porter yeah. guy, he left. There's nobody to come in no, and we're take down the job. To Eric Trump. Yeah, got to start bringing in the boys. Stop running the company. Run the Eric, nation, guys. I need your help. Republicans in the House are building a wall. It just really? might not be the one you expect. CBS News reported Thursday that a wall, the wall in question is being built by Republicans in the offices of the House Intelligence Committee rather than down by the border. The apparent reason for the structure is to keep Democratic and Republican staffers apart, evidence of the bipartisan hostilities ravaging the committee, CBS News said. The construction is apparently slated for the spring. Several Republicans on the committee were not apprised of the plans of the wall, but mused to CBS News that it sounds like the work of the House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez. Seems a bit counterproductive. Remember when yeah. you, have, you shared a room with a sibling 
and it was like a Brady Bunch episode. I think they put a, a like tape down the middle tape, of the right room, the and the, you can't cross the yeah. room. Oh, well, the bathrooms on that side of the room doesn't matter. Use the one in the hall, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what they're doing in the House Intelligence Committee offices when it comes to the staffers. Well, yeah, <laughs> somebody needs, but they. I think on the Brady Bunch they taped the so you couldn't. Somebody had the door. Yeah, like somebody had a window. Yeah. <laughs> How am I supposed to get out? Not my problem. Use no. the window. That's kind of the... We're on the second story. The, this is the office with the warring memos. Yeah. Right? That were such a big deal a week ago. By the way, I just so you know, I've decided to start sending more memos. All right. Really? I'm just letting you all know that. Well, Next week is que- the week of memos. Well, I have questionably sourced information on both sides. Yes. Okay, good. Don't forget to put a uh, cover page on your memos. Yeah, yes, always. Please. Mm-hmm. Just for logistical reasons. The finally, war of memos begins. Finally, a beloved pet hamster that was flushed down a toilet has become the latest controversial case in airlines versus people seeking to travel with emotional support animals. Oh. <gasps> Belene Anacosta, 21, on Thursday accused Spirit Airlines of causing her tearfully to flush pebbles. The hamster down a toilet at an airport bathroom after the company refused to let her bring the pet on a flight as an emotional support animal, according to her lawyer. What? The woman made the choice after spirit staffers allegedly told her before the trip that she could bring the pet and later refused to let the animal on board her flight from Baltimore to Washington. Mm. They, would, they wouldn't make you fly. Wouldn't well, they, they just say, get off the plane? I then? don't think they made her flush it down the toilet that it said you can't bring that thing on the plane. Right? The woman is alleging that an airline representative <laughs> then, after saying you can't bring it on, suggested she flush the small animal oh. on the toilet. So she did. Wow. That's poor, harsh. Poor pebbles. I mean, now Pebbles is just some blue little ice cube. <laughs> An emotional support hamster. Oh, that's tragic. That is going to mess that person up. Now, she has a bunch of health problems. She was actually flying to uh, have a medical procedure done in Washington, D.C., I believe. Ooh. So so all this is coming into it, but it just comes back to this controversy over what is and isn't a support animal. What airline did this? Spirit. Hmm. Spirit in the sky. Okay, because uh, now they missed the spirit of that one. Now we've had a hamster, we've had a pig, we even had somebody that tried to bring a peacock uh-huh. on the airplane. Where does it stop, though? I wonder. Well, it's, Kangaroo. It's, it's An hard. elephant. Kangaroo. It's hard to flush a peacock. <laughs> it's true. You know. Um, oh, that is that's a big deal. It is. Pebbles. <laughs> Pebbles. It's a tough day for pebbles. Yeah. It's a tough, tough day for Pebbles' owner, poor right. woman. And I hope her procedure went okay. It, it happened in November, so it's interesting when, <sighs> when things come out. But uh, By the way, Kim Yo Jong there you go. That is was... the sister of the North Korean leader. Yo. We'll just call her Yo. Yo Yong. Yo Jong. Kim, Yo Jong? Kim Yo Jong. Hmm. Kim Yo Jong. We, uh, we ought to ask uh, Spencer Linton how to say her name. Hmm. Exactly. This is the first time... A member of the North Korean ruling family has entered South Korea since the end of the Korean War. That is amazing. Whoa. They've come to the border, not to the... And she is the... literally one, two, three, four, five people, five people away from Vice President Pence. Interesting. Hmm. By the way, one seat back. She's a row back. Oh, okay. She's not a front row guest. She's not a front row guest, mm. but she's a second row guest. And by the way, we got we I guess we have to talk about this because you'll see it tonight when you go home and watch the Olympics opening ceremony, those that are going to go. I'm sure they'll replay it tonight, right? They have to. Um, How else are they going to capitalize on those viewers? 
I, I didn't know that Tonga was a big competitor in the Winter Olympics. Hmm. They're in the Olympics. I don't know if they're a big competitor. But their flag bearer yeah. is pretty much shirtless. Is shirtless. Not pretty much. He has wow. no shirt on. It's 20 degrees. He's got to be freezing. Yeah. But as he's he oiled, carries the flag. He's oiled up, looking good. Yeah. I think the oil is actually how he stays warm. Is that what it is? Yeah. More of an insulator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it weird that uh, I only want to watch the bobsled competition to watch the Jamaicans compete? Yeah. Are they in it? Because you're not going to bring up a movie. Are that's you? the only country that I think of when I think of bobsleds. Oh, don't you think of like the Russians with no. the, and the Bulgarians or whatever? Maybe oh. the maybe the Swiss, but the Swiss are also in the movie. So, yeah. But I think three Swiss, three men in a Swiss sled reminds me of a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Doesn't it? You? It's the shape, yeah. Yeah, and then when they slowly get out, they start unfolding. Mm-hmm. I think it's awesome. One guy's a bottle opener. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, Olympic winter Olympic event? Other, I mean, we know yours is obviously curling because that's how you met the misses. That's right. Not really my favorite. It was it hurt. Well, quite sorry, a bit. that's the most romantic. I'm, one I'm the you. most acquainted with it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, any others that you really get into? Not really. Really. Yeah. Mine might be the bobsled. I like the bobsled. Or isn't there like a one man or two man bobsled? Uh, there's a skeleton. That's where they go down headfirst, mm-hmm. on a like sled. a rocket on a sled. Yeah, that's also known as death on Ooh. ice. What <laughs> impels a person to do that, um, or compels them? Well, it might it depends. Yeah, uh, the thrill of victory and the soon agonizing pain of crashing. Yeah, maybe? and the serious know. dislike of life. Hmm. You're just like, I'm going to throw myself head first down. Would you rather go head first down or foot feet first? Hmm. See, it's just – it seems like a difficult way to achieve fame and a dangerous at, way at that. I mean where you could just take a video of your cat and get millions and millions of viewers and money, why would you spend your entire life hmm. – Putting yourself through this grueling exercise point. routine, <laughs> potentially dying. It's a yeah. pro cat video point there. It's a really good. I don't point. know if you went head first, you could at least see it coming. That's what I'm thinking. If you're going feet first, you're craning your neck up to see your toes. I, Would you want to see it? Yeah, that's the other thing. Would you rather just kind of be a passenger, or do you want to? Would be you driving rather be like, "Whoa, this is getting squirrely," <laughs> and then it's over? They kind of hook their toes around the blades, and then they it's, wear those really slick. Uh, Outfits that yeah. are tight and boy, just that alone will keep you flying. Right. I don't know. I don't. But I'd rather do that than jump. Like those long ski jumper people that mm-hmm. just fly for miles. Eddie the Eagle. My son was watching the uh, slalom. Um, is it slaloms? Is that what they call them? Where you go down and there's yeah. all the bumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I was mm-hmm. like, moguls. The moguls. That's what it was. The moguls. I just every time I see a mogul, it's like knee pain, a back pain. Yeah. Have that, you have you skied mm. moguls? No. Horrible. I I, I fell down. Cr- I was trying to cross country ski once, and I got like yeah. five feet. I just kept falling down. You know, I'm just you, not, not this good. is what it sounds like skiing moguls. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, then there's like a graceful <laughs> jump in the middle, maybe a backflip, and then you're busting your knees some more. No, it's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Okay, that's our Olympic coverage. There you go. From the- <laughs> Top to bottom, right there. From the show. It really is going to be a great opening. So gather your, your family, get your spandex on, hmm. 
get some popcorn. Be careful. Don't share it, as Jeff warned us. It's a fast way to catch disease. Up next, we're going to be talking about how America's coastal cities left the heartland behind. This is The Matt Townsend Show. At the start of 2016, the NFL announced that the St. Louis Rams would relocate to Los Angeles, California. Rams owner E. Stanley Kroenke uh, had been pushing for this move for quite some time, seeking to capitalize on L.A.'s media market and therefore increase revenue. This move is one of dozens of examples that shows the current economic decline in many of America's Midwestern cities, uh, while many believe it to be an issue of deindustrialization and the trends in the free market, it may not be that simple. Not long ago, I interviewed Brian Feldman, researcher, reporter with the Open Markets Program at New America. Politicians and lawmakers have been influencing this trend for over 30 years. I began the interview by asking why he chose to focus on the city of St. Louis. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. I think in sort of the American mind, St. Louis has traditionally been sort of the gateway to the west um literally and figuratively you know there's the great arch there right um and even at the turn of the 20th century 1900 st louis was the fourth largest city in america and this is when we have the world's fair with this sort of just ornate fantastic celebration and st louis is really a hub of commercial activity as well as culture and that's why in my story I actually focused largely on the advertising community in St. Louis. I mean, which is – I had no idea it was that big. I mean, it was responsible for launching, you know, Coca-Cola brands and, you know, bringing Santa Claus to Coca-Cola, right. <laughs> which was a huge coup. But also, you know, a lot of the beer companies out there and, um, I mean, just major industries were using St. Louis – as their advertising hub. And it became a city where they had a lot of talent. It, it became the, the mecca for advertising, right? Exactly. And what's really great about focusing on the advertising community to tell this story is two things. Is First, advertising in and of itself is a sort of cultural experience. For people who work in advertising, you need to have artists, you need to attract talent from all over. And so that St. Louis had these um, people, as well as other Midwestern cities, is one thing. But the second thing, too, is the advertising industry stands as this really great proxy for all of the other businesses that were in St. Louis, because at the end of the day, advertising is really a service to help other businesses sell and distribute their products. And that all these people turn to St. Louis and what you could call the sort of literal breadbasket of America, you know, sort of shows us that here in St. Louis, there was sort of bountiful talent and industry for the past, you know, century. And that only started to change in the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. It's It was interesting to me. One thing I didn't realize is um, how how much over the years, even over the last hundred years, how much government intervention had been there to to keep money flowing to the cities. 
Uh, I mean, like banks, like um, the the reserve banks that were located in 12 locations around the country. That was all designed to make sure that bigger outside organ or uh, the the money could stay in these cities. So the smaller city uh, business people couldn't be pressed out by bigger cities. Exactly. And so in my article, sort of the main reason I call upon for sort of these changes we're seeing is this dramatic interpretation and enforcement in our antitrust laws. And sort of what you were just saying, I just want to take a really short moment to explain sort of what these antitrust laws were originally and then how they completely changed. So um 1890, if we you know, go back 100 or so years, this is when the first antitrust law passes, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And Congress, when they're debating this law, they end up looking to the Constitution for inspiration. And our Constitution, in its most basic form, is a document that aims to distribute and disperse political power. Uh, you know, this is through three branches of government. This is through having checks and balances, term limits. And all of this, of course, was in response to the complete and total power of the British. And in the same way that Americans have always been very distrustful of large political power, they sought to create the antitrust laws to distribute economic power. And this was in response to sort of a handful of individuals who had started operating the large trusts of their day. Um, And so it was through that distribution a power that we see all throughout America, opportunity in many, many cities from Omaha to St. Louis to Sioux City, instead of just being located in New York or San Francisco and Boston, like we're increasingly seeing today. That's it, isn't it? It's so the the, those, the antitrust uh, legislation and and laws and the Sherman Act and the um, Federal Reserve Act of 1913. These things. Kind of de- they they um, they made it so that uh, there was access equal access you couldn't you couldn't have antitrust you couldn't go in and have big companies overwhelming the smaller organizations but have th- those then you're saying within the last thirty years or so have been reversed by Absolutely. politicians by our presidents right and you know the sort of interesting thing is that this is not just a Democratic issue or a Republican issue, but this was really a bipartisan strategy. And it was sort of a goofy alliance because you had these very radical left-wing, you know, economists who were working with libertarians, two groups we usually don't think of having a lot in common. (laughs) And um, what they end up doing is sort of completely reinterpreting these antitrust laws. So what, you know, we had just said before is that it's about distributing power, maintaining regional equity, ensuring that an individual has an opportunity anywhere, whether he or she is, you know, in the West, in the Midwest, in the South, to, if he or she's an entrepreneur, to go and start a business. Um, What's happened is instead of that sort of emphasis on markets, which are human-made things as being a political decision, these economists said, Rather, the market is something that's natural or mechanical, and they decided that the thing that we really need to focus on instead is consumer welfare or efficiency. Hmm. So instead of it being uh, an an equalizing power uh, tool, it became giving efficiencies to consumers – 
So I guess so. I guess in the end, we would supposedly pay less. Right. And we see that sometimes happening. But what ends up happening is probably far worse. And we end up paying more in other respects. Um, When we see a lot of these mergers, one of the first thing, of course, is that jobs are shed. Right. And, um, you know, the larger the sort of combining firms, the more people that are displaced and out of jobs. And, you know, another really important consideration is a lot of these companies that end up being bought out or that end up moving their headquarters, a lot of the community leaders which lead these businesses or companies also no longer have as much influence or sway. Or, you know, these individuals who really are the people who know their communities best, instead, uh, now what happens is sort of a a distance um, CEO or owner comes in trying to interpret what a community needs, and oftentimes that doesn't always work out for the best. And and so talk to us about what happened to St. Louis, for example, with all this deregulation and I mean, I know a lot of it ends up being, in a weird way, focused on the airlines industry. Um, but it seems like, it, in a way, some of the deregulation in airlines industries has gutted the Midwest. It's gutted the access to mm-hmm. businesses. And talk, just talk about how that, how it all plays out today for these, for some of these cities, you know, in Wisconsin, in. Uh, since in, in like uh, in uh, Cleveland or Cincinnati as cities, um, where else? Where else do we see this this kind of gutting of America? It's largely in these midwestern cities. Um, you know, Cincinnati and Cleveland are great great examples as well. And um, you know, sort of bringing it back to St. Louis, there's this really interesting fact where uh, 1980. So this is despite some of the offshoring of jobs and the loss of manufacturing. St. Louis, for instance, had, um, I believe it was the second largest car manufacturing city after Detroit. Um, They ended up losing all that. But even so, still in 1980, St. Louis had somewhere, some 20 plus Fortune 500 companies and their per capita income was 89% of that of New York City. So more or less the same Hmm. today. What we see is St. Louis now only has nine Fortune 500 companies, and a sort of interesting, timely piece of news is that there was also, I think, believe it was yesterday or two days ago, um, the German company Bayer announced that it wanted to acquire Monsanto, which is one of St. Louis's uh, hallmark companies. So that might drop down to eight because that company would be headquartered in Germany now. But the other really surprising fact is that that per capita income dropped by 10%. So it's now 79% of New York City. And so largely what you had mentioned is the sort of deregulation of the airlines plays into this. And, you know, I think a lot of people can agree anytime we fly airplanes, it's becoming more and more just a <laughs> disorienting, right, right. harrowing experience. Um, and the other sort of secondary component of that, though, is that before all of these changes, airlines were in some ways seen as a common or public good as a way to connect businessmen, businesswomen, uh, community leaders to other parts of the city so that they could travel and do their jobs. Today, um, and the statistic is sort of scary, but of the largest metropolitan areas and regions, 
either one or two airlines has complete control and dominance over the routes um, that those customers fly, which not only results in higher uh, prices, but also less choice as to where individuals can fly to. So it's hard because if, you know, somebody in, say, Cincinnati wants to try to get the next flight out to New York to meet with somebody, there's not going to be as much availability as there are from somebody coming from Boston, San Francisco, uh, or even New York. Wow. In fact, in your in your report, you said in 2014, only 500 aircraft took off and landed daily at Lambert Airport, which is um, in St. Louis, right? A, fr- a fraction of all of the all time high of 1400 in 1997. So about a third of what was going on in 1997. Um, moreover, the airport service only seven, 1,176 international flights a year, down from 3,800 uh, in 2002. Brian is a research reporter with Open Markets Program at New America. He previously worked for an education technology company in Ohio and uh, through Venture for America. And he's been his writing has appeared on BBC and uh, a bunch of other organizations. He's here talking about an article that he wrote. It really more is like a dissertation, Brian. Um, it's how America's <laughs> coastal cities left the heartland behind. But you've been basically teaching us that through regulation and um, a lot of different passing of laws and acts, the the United States was doing what it could to ensure competition. Especially and and kind of equal access to money, and and um, safe business practices for hundred hundred plus years. And in the last thirty years or so, the game has changed a bit with with deregulation, and it's it's been a bipartisan uh, maybe deal, right? It's been Republicans and Democrats doing it, and but in a, in an, in the end, it seems like, and what I'm hearing is, we we now have a lot of. Um, like you, I hear Donald Trump and others complaining about the trade agreements. So that would kind of be the international, um, the international uh, lack of jobs going outside of the country. But we've also had issues with loss of manufacturing. Transportation issues have also been become a major problem. What do you? What else do you see is happening with Middle America, and why? Why really are people as angry as they are? So the other important thing I you know want to talk about quickly, and you had just touched on it, was banking as well. Um, banks are really, really important because they're the easiest way for an individual or entrepreneur to access capital to start a business. And so having these banks distributed across the country was a really great accessible way for people to get loans that they could then use to start their own businesses. Um, again, this was a 1994 law that basically deregulated the banking industry. And so, again, all of the banks and access to capital has now sort of shifted left and right to the coast. In Missouri, there's this really appalling statistic. Um, you know, 1980s, there were 630-plus community banks um, today, there's only 260. Wow. So that's a dramatic, dramatic loss. So imagine if you're somebody who is in a community trying to 
go out and start a business, not only is that hard because your local sort of community institution is now either out of business or has merged with a larger sort of institution whose lender probably isn't as sensitive to that community which it's serving, but it's really difficult for those individuals to have really any say in their community. There's this anger, and I think in some sense, the anger may be a bit misplaced because I think the at the root of this anger is a frustration with that institutions, whether it's a big government or whether it's a big corporation, that individuals are slowly losing control over these forces that now govern their lives. Right. And this, I argue, is largely the result of these dramatic changes that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years and may add very quietly changed um, that have completely altered sort of America's landscape. Hmm. Is it, um, I mean, it's it's interesting too, by the way, Warren Buffett, one of the the great businessmen of of ever really is is a midwestern guy and yet i'm going to bet most of his holdings are on the coasts right, <laughs> right? Exactly. so he yeah. just kind of lives there and then commutes out i guess but mm-hmm. the other thing that was interesting to me is uh is a big push in the media right so all a, a lot of the the midwestern folk feel like they're not even understood by the media necessarily and instead, we hear the stories of the coasts again. Yeah, that's a great, great point as well. Um, you know, we've seen massive consolidation in sort of the media industry as well, where now it's more or less the sort of Washington or New York bubble. And anytime a sort of Midwestern newspaper comes out, people here, you know, in D.C. often say, oh, OK, that's sort of nice. But, you know, if we remember back, you know, 1980s, the president every morning received not only the New York Times and the Washington Post, but also newspapers like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, hmm. all on, you know, sort of the death and briefing report. And now that's completely changed. And for these communities, that's also another really big issue, because, again, a local news organization is going to be able to best report on the community on which it serves. And so having, again, an outside interest that comes in and sort of uproots not only the sort of commerce and economic vitality, but also this sense of culture is really detrimental to a lot of communities. And as a result today, there's really very little that can be done to stop all of these changes we're seeing. What What would you say, uh, Brian, to these people that argue, hold it, it's just these states, these cities were behind. They just, I mean, Chicago, It's it seemed to be managing it, right? I mean, Chicago's a Midwestern state, yet aren't they doing better? I mean, are some states just playing this, this problem better than others, or... Um, or is there a, a flaw in your theory? So I definitely think that we've seen a very, very dramatic shift. And, you know, sort of the big thing people talk about is income inequality, which is absolutely an issue. But right. I would argue that the other secondary issue that is tangential to that, but which people haven't yet focused on, is regional inequality. And I think that we're absolutely seeing this. Again, if we go back... Only 30 or 40 years ago, looking at those per capita 
income statistics, which really is a measure of all of the sort of economic development of a region, all of those Midwestern cities, they were actually, if you look on a graph, it's, it's really fascinating. They were all increasing and converging toward New York City, which was and has always been sort of America's best, um, you know, most Fortune 500 companies, right. et cetera. Um, but ever since it's 1981, when you really look closely on the graph, you start to see it stops and then it just starts to go down this line. And so, sure, there are some cities that have weathered the storm better than others. Chicago, for instance, um, you know, Pittsburgh is another city that in recent years has come back and rebounded. But we have to think beyond just Midwestern cities, also all of the small towns, heartland communities that once were a really sort of local and thriving place where anybody, if he or she wanted to start a business or to manage his or her own affairs, could go out into the community and Mm -hmm. not feel necessarily constrained by um, not only the lack of opportunity or choice, but also a sort of distant absentee owner dictating what that community can or cannot and you see the South as well, right? I mean, it's a, it's they also seem to be struggling in many states um, for probably a, a variety of reasons. But one of the things I also find interesting is uh, we always talk about the I think it's called the blue wall. The Democrats kind of have this inherent supposed hold on all of these states, but the states historically are, are many of the states you're talking about through the Rust Belt, some of the Midwest states. And um, it seems like, in a way, a few of those might be more in play this year than ever before. And if if it's true, it might be exactly what you're stating, Brian. People have just had it. They've had it without with not having the opportunities that other uh, other states have had. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. You know, we see Pennsylvania perhaps now being in play as a yeah. state, um, West Virginia as well, and. Really, like you said, a lot of other traditional Rust Belt or Heartland cities, and I really, really do believe that this strikes at this core sort of um, industry in issue here, which is that this is not just a matter of jobs leaving the U.S. for Mexico and a lot of the free trade agreements, which we've been hearing you know, sort of in our political discourse over the last couple of months, but actually something that's happening domestically right before our eyes in America, which very few people are talking about, which is that we're seeing the complete sort of uprooting of cities and towns and businesses and sort of having those transplanted on the coast instead of letting them sort of bloom where they belong and where they've traditionally always been, which is throughout America. Yeah. Brian, what's a what's the solution? What should we be pushing for? What what do we do? So in my piece and what I also work on is trying to revive and restore our traditional antitrust policies. And it's interesting because in some ways the antitrust policies, some people say they're sort of like antiques or they're time-worn, but I like to think of them as a really nice piece of China, you know, so perhaps it's in our, uh, you know, living rooms or mm-hmm. dining room storage unit, but if we take it out and look at it, we see, wow, this is such a beautiful, amazing tool. 
why have we completely forgot about it? And so what we need to do is enforce those laws again in the same way that they were enforced up into the 1970s and having specific emphasis on antitrust is not only about seeing what is most efficient for the consumer, but also which what is the best way to distribute opportunity and to ensure that there are not large concentrations of power that favor a handful of individuals at the expense of arrest at the rest of America. Totally. I mean, it's it just is interesting because we, we live in a very systemic world and you change one implementation of one antitrust policy and you may not see a big change for 30 years. Then you see it mm-hmm. gutting America. I mean it's – it is. It's interesting and, and sometimes you wonder if the politicians see it, right, or if they're just – too close to the trees. You can't see the forest for the trees. Well, Brian, we appreciate you. It's great insight. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thanks for being with us. And keep keep writing. You just need to turn it into a book, Brian. Just turn that big bad boy into a book. You're already halfway there. Um, it's great stuff. Uh, again, the article's name is, is titled, How America's Coastal Cities Left the Heartland Behind. It's just solutions, folks. It's ideas. And they need somebody in there or believe that somebody in there that's a true blue business person might at least give them a shot. Anyway, it's, it's, we're here to inform, here to give you some information. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We're finding the good in the world and solutions to go along with it. We'll be right back. Okay, so, you know, everybody's got a bad habit here and there. <laughs> and some of us here and there. Yeah. Wow. That's a good point, that's ins- too. That's insightful. Um, that really, that's a good... <laughs> yeah, I hope it's more there, though, than here. Uh, don't do it here. But let's... Uh, Terry's been doing some research on some bad habits of singles. Yes. So we get these sort of random surveys that come out. Yeah. The uh, This one's from Mattress Advisor. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you mean the mattress advisor. Right. So I imagine they advise you on mattresses. Yeah. Just going out on a limb there. This one's springy. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I got a bowling ball and they drop it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the average person waits more than three weeks, 24 days to be exact, to change his or her sheets. Is that, is that a long time? Halt. <laughs> <laughs> they, that, they talked to 1,000 Americans and that's the number they came, out, came away with. 24 days. 24 days between... Changing sheets on your bed that you sleep in every night. Wait, is that a lot? That's quite a bit, yeah. That seems like a lot of skin cells. But say, says who? Says people who... Says we'll, the mattress. We'll, we'll get to it. It's okay. in here. It says okay. some, sing, some single men were particularly skeevy, as it says, spending 45 days, Ooh. six and a half weeks sleeping Man. in their... Those sheets could sheet. change themselves. <laughs> and, That's uh, pretty gross. Yeah. So wait, and how often do they say we should change the the sheets? I've seen multiple reports saying at least weekly. Weekly? Hotels do them daily. Man, next you're going to tell me that I've got to change our towels every three weeks. I change mine three times a week. Let's let's be reasonable here. That's probably not enough. So single (laughs) women fared slightly better changing their sheets 19 days, every 19 days. See, that's it. 
um, and stripping sheets. Uh, won't get on it. Married couples also kept the cleaner uh, sleeping space than singles, changing their sheets every 19 days, pillowcases every 22 days. I'm like, aren't they a set? That's how it works at my house. See, so it's all the sets. So you I don't want think, like the ugh. yeah, you don't want to mix in. No clash. I would think that the pillowcase would need to be cleaned before the rest of the sheets. Yeah, but you sleep in a river. Mm. So again, single or married married people, 19 days to change a pillowcase, 22 days on the average. Singles left their sheets and pillowcases on for 37 days. Wow. So do we need to be changing them so frequently because we're eating in bed? It's what it's, You guys eat in bed, right? So it says, what's the problem? Even if you don't noticeably you know, make them dirty where there's yeah. like you drop food on them like you're talking about. Uh, the, your bed is a lot dirtier than it looks. It's because the average person drops around 26 gallons of sweat into his or her sheets every year. Hold it. What? And they shed about 10 grams of skin every day. Those are the meat sweats. That's, <laughs> that is a lot of sweat. I don't believe that. Number. And finally, a 20, uh, 2005 University of Manchester study found that up to 16 species of fungi live in single pillow. Hmm. So, you know, just keep your area clean. The scary thing about the fungi, that's, that's the average number. Yeah. 16 you could species have a, of fungi. You could have a bloom. I mean, there's some it. that really have... You know they're they're high fungi achievers. So what people what they're saying though is that we don't pay enough attention to where we sleep. I think we ought and to. And you probably just may, maybe if you change them weekly, that would yeah. be better. But then the problem is then you have to buy more sheets. How many sets of sheets do a, a certain person have? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a great I think, question. I think I need to rethink my life, and my the, entire life, and the yeah. hassle change, changing the sheets in, on on my bed is crazy. Oh, like, I don't want to do this, work. and then I never do it right. That's why My I, wife has to redo it. Shouldn't we just all have sleeping bags? That would be great. Then you just – all you have to do is throw, throw your sleeping bag in the washer, let's say, and then you get it out and flip it once and boom, you're ready. Then your dirt and disease is even more airtight. Yeah, it's all compacted into one, <laughs> one uh, fungal vessel. Boy, that just I think you were in a – weren't you in a band called Fungal Vessel? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. yeah it, didn't, it didn't take off. We'd, let's just say we didn't have a bloom. So change your sheets more often. Is that's, of a great, that's a great rule of thumb. Change your sheets more often, at least, really, it sounds like every two and a half weeks. You, that's the minimum. <laughs> I'd say weekly, but, you know, yeah. to each his own. Well, the, the average is 19 days. That hmm. seems pretty clean. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Maybe this is why we keep getting sick. Yeah, maybe that's it. That's a great point. See the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and get rid of that fungal bloom. We'll have more next hour. And I realize that everything. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you, and uh, we wish you the very best as you watch the Olympics today. Or tonight. Yeah. Since it's the other side of the planet, and time's weird. But a lot of weird things are going on there, and so you you will want to check it out. There's the the opening ceremonies, uh, if you're into... um, The political side of it, you'll see Vice President Pence... Hmm. Uh, just a few seats away from Kim Jong Un's sister, and uh, that's that's pretty fascinating. 
It's the first time that uh, North and South Korean leaders or uh, royal family from North Korea has been in South Korea. I guess royal families accurate. It's, they don't call themselves that, but it's kind of what they are. Yeah, they and they're well, you know, I, I guess you know, deity. Yeah, first time deity has been that, in South, Car- does South that, Korea. Does that extend to her? Sure. When you're the sister, wow, of deity, deity, huh? Okay, so that works. So that's exciting, and so you'll have something really fun to do tonight. I mean, I know next hour Jeff will take over um, screen cleaning and and be sharing lots of movie ideas, ways to you know have a great weekend. But none of that will matter. Because, Wait, what? Um, huh? Instead, everyone will be watching the Olympics. Wow! Where you will see Bengalish wow. tigers running around the stadium. Okay, that sounds safe. You're probably not watching. You're not. You're not watching it like I am. No. So but, wait a minute. The Olympics will still be going on next week. So by that same argument, I could say that your show won't matter next week because people hmm. will be watching the Olympics, right? No, no, no. Because my show talks about things in the day. Your show would talk about things in the night. <laughs> That's kind of different. Yeah, but so you're saying people only watch TV and movies at night. Yes. Wow. Yes. And the neat thing you're going to see about the Americans, uh, you're going to have... By the way, I think our show is actually going to be okay. Yeah. Because right now, in South Korea, it is 12.08 a.m. Saturday. Yeah. See, we're fine. They've so, got some event going on right now, right? Not, not an official one. They try not no, to do it too much. None of Yeah. They're so all no, supposed to be... They're all resting. Yeah. They're resting Sleeping. for tomorrow's event. So, That's again, athletes by do. that same argument, my show should be okay, too, then. Yeah, you should be fine. They, I mean, they'll be sleeping, then. <laughs> right now, it's like they're just they're, they're having dinner. They're having a celebration at the end of the day. Maybe they're having us on for some ambiance, you know, some yeah. little background Ooh, information. Yeah. And people are like, oh, wait, I just heard them say, your show comes on, Jeff. Everyone was gone to bed. So I'm the middle-of-the-night DJ. Yeah. But you're, you're the Aerie. Delilah. You're the Delilah of the Olympics. <laughs> but recording at nine o'clock in the morning. Got it. Got it. Uh, by the way, you'll be proud of the Americans because they're sporting a, a Ralph Lauren look. They are. They have fringe. They have fringe. On their they have waffle stomper boots. Yes, my uh, mom had those when I was a kid. Uh, so I had them. They, yeah. and they are horribly uncomfortable. Right. Waffle stomping means something else on a college campus. By the way, we can talk about it during the break. Oh. Oh. Wow. Scary. Um, they're also wearing denim. Because yes. nothing says America more See, than I, our denim. And I didn't believe you. I made you yeah. do extra Google searches to figure out that you had true They really denim. look hip and cool. And then they've got these really big kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call them, um, the western coats? gloves. Oh, the gloves? Like the fringe. With fringe gloves yeah. that go up to their elbows. And we've seen the comparisons to uh, the skin. characters in Dumb and Dumber yeah. who wore the same thing when they went to Vail. Yeah. It's an exciting... They come out and they all look a, a lot like the Dumb and Dumber characters, except yeah. <laughs> with red, white, and blue on. They do. The hats look the same. It's great. But they're so happy. And again, somebody made an interesting point that have you? Did, have we made it this hour? I, or did mm. you just make it during maybe, the break? Maybe I said it. We, we've had an in-depth conversation. We've been talking a lot lately. It's kind of weird. And um, one of the things, though, is people don't know a lot of these Olympians. Yes. There was a 
in a, an accurate Twitter poll, but 19,000 people responded. 94% of the people responding said they only know one to five people who Which are actually Which is crazy because I know Lindsey Vaughn. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's that's kind of where I stopped. In I, fact, I Did could, I say Lindsey Vaughn? I went to say Peekaboo Street because yeah. that's the, really the- Peekaboo is awesome. But I know She's that's awesome. not her name. And She'll I know probably that, get a gold. Lindsey Vaughn has been out there, but I don't remember the name. And then you said it. I'm like, right, Lindsey yeah. Vaughn. So I would have been zero. Yeah. Until oh, you said uh, her there's name. there's Tanya Harding. No, she's not out there. Nancy Kerrigan? Nancy Kerrigan. She's there. She's back, I think. But I think she's doing commentary. What about Dorothy Hamill? No. Hmm. Scott Hamilton? He's yeah. there. No, he's not there. He's actually going to be at Roots Tech. Really? <laughs> the Roots... Uh, Comic-Con for family history that goes on in the region that we live in. Is he? They have all the billboards. It says he's the original Hamilton. Yeah. Is he a Mormon? No, but oh. that's not a requirement. It's a weird question. Why? I, I, I guarantee you a, a large percentage of people going to that conference will be of the Mormon faith. Well, they need to look at the program. Yeah. It's a beautiful opening um, opening ceremony. And they, they've done a great job. That's you, great. Everybody should get home, get home early, turn off screen cleaning. Mm. Hey, what? <laughs> I mean, you'll listen to it now, but then uh. instead of watching movies tonight, turn off your screens, keep them cleans. I have. How do you how do you know we're not exercises. talking? How do you know we're not doing a full show about the Olympics next hour? Because you you don't do that stuff. It's uh, TV. We talk about TV all I, the time. Are, are you doing a whole show on the Olympics? No, we're not. Okay. See, I have That's 180 programs on my DVR to watch. Man. I got to pick one. Do I do I watch the Olympics or do I watch one of the 180 programs that have piled up? Do you ever think the way that I do that you see this huge list of movies and TV shows you want to get through? Do you ever think, you know, maybe I could knock this out in a weekend? No. No? What? Okay. I, I know how time works. What's your works. hurry? What's your hurry? <laughs> I just, I don't stress about it. If I if I get to the point where there's like twenty program twenty of this show, obviously I'm not going to watch that show anymore. I just delete it. It mm. does stress me out though, is the thing, because I get so overwhelmed with the array of choices mm. that I end up just not watching anything. Mm. Hmm. I I'm, I accomplished. I, less. I am looking for a new show to watch. With the way my DVR works, the older the show is in the system, the more chances you have that it'll allow you to skip all the commercials. That should be a good gauge. Like, if you skip it three times, just get rid of it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of – I mean, there, there's stuff that's at the bottom of the list that has like 10, 15 episodes. I'm, like, I'm not going to watch all those. And yeah. I try to delete it. And I go, ah, but maybe. at least you have them. Yeah, there's something speaking, comforting about just having them. In the summer, there's less TV. Yeah. Hey, speaking Terry, of... Terry, keep talking. He's trying, to get a, of, he's trying to get a word in. Yeah, speaking no. of um, <laughs> skipping it, um, apparently Tonga's banner carrier skipped wearing a shirt. Yeah, he did it last time also. I feel bad. Do they not have uniforms? I mean, the Americans no, have they do. two coats. They do, but there is a certain swoon factor that he's trying to uh, develop See, across this, the globe. This is not fair. HR, when I started working here, told me, Numerous times, you need to come to shirt. You need to come to work with a shirt. Oh, yeah. No, well, that's different. This guy gets to go to work without well, a shirt. I think when you see him, you'll see the difference. Hmm. Not sure what you mean by that. I mean, he's he's just really talented. We're both oiled up. So where, what's the difference? 
He's put a lot more work in. It looks yeah. like. Than By others. the way, tonight also, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I don't want to have a spoiler alert, but I want you to see if you can find Hello Kitty. Hmm. Oh, is it on his backpack? You will find thousands of Hello Kitties running around. Oh boy! And I'm not going to tell you where. You have to find him. Oh wow. It's kind of the Where's Waldo of the Olympics. Where's Hello Kitty? Where's Hello Kitty? And I don't know if it is Hello Kitty, but it, it looks a lot like Hello Kitty. It's close. It might be hmm. Hello Groundhog. Oh, could be. It's a blue groundhog from a story we did last hour. <laughs> uh, let's get to the headlines, find out what else is going on. Terry, what uh, should we be paying attention to? The Senate and the House have passed a bipartisan budget agreement and spending bill to reopen the federal government five hours after they shut it down early Friday morning. Government in action, though. This is big. The bill passed through the Senate with a 71-28 vote, then before dawn passed the House with a 240-186 vote. Bipartisan vote, by the way. Ish. Uh, They waited. The government shut down just after Friday, the second shutdown in three weeks after Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky held up the vote on a bipartisan deal that would have lifted the impasse. Paul objected to the GOP leader's decision to block him from offering an amendment to the bill, which includes a sweeping two-year budget deal that fiscal conservatives in both chambers are opposing. Uh, the measure faced uncertain passage in the House where Democrats vowed to vote against it because it did not include legal protections for undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children, but it gained sufficient support with 73 Democrats eventually voting yes. They actually waited, let all the Republicans vote. There's like five minutes to go in the voting period, yeah. and then they all voted at the same time, basically. It was like a tidal wave of... Oh, agreement wow. at the end. President Trump has signed the bill this morning. As you said, he yeah, got he up early it. and took care got of business. Up early in his silk jammies and signed. And then I think he the accused bill. the Democrats of something in the next tweet. Oh, really? Yeah, it was great. So it's just business hey, as usual. Hey, we're getting stuff done. <laughs> we're just moving <laughs> along here. Lawmakers are back to their old tricks using acronyms to make their point even more obvious. House Democrats on Thursday introduced the Parade Act. Otherwise known as the Preventing the Allocation of Resources for Absurd Defense Expenditures Bill, <laughs> which, which aims to keep taxpayers from footing the bill if President Trump dreams of a if his dreams of a military parade do indeed come to fruition. Representative Mark Vassie of Texas introduced the legislation to prevent taxpayer-funded resources to bring an authoritarian-inspired show of force to life, the statement from his office reads. As a strong supporter of our military families, I know we're all beyond thankful for the sacrifices our military make on behalf of our country every day. An expensive political ploy whose sole aim is to boost Trump's approval ratings is an insult to their service and detracts from resources needed to provide meaningful assistance to veterans and current service members. Wow. There's been a lot of comment. Why don't you take the cost of that parade and put it into the VA, which has been struggling for mm, long, yeah, long time now? Yeah, but then you wouldn't get somebody throwing taffy at you. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's no, what's the fun there? But I love that. They sit down and try to figure out how do we take the word parade and then make it, <laughs> and they turn it to preventing the allocation of resources for absurd defense expenditures. Oh, but you know what? Once you have something in your head, think about it. Like, if all of a sudden you were making. 50 times more money than you normally make, yeah. you'd go buy the things that you used to want. Sure. He always wanted a parade. I guess. And now he's the president, and by golly, he's going to get a parade. <sighs> yeah. We'll see. White House counsel Don McGahn was aware of the domestic violence allegations against Staff Secretary Rob Porter for a full year before the claims were made public this week. The Washington Post reports... 
McGahn allowed Porter to continue serving as an aide to the president despite the allegations, while Chief of Staff John Kelly actually gave Porter more responsibilities this past fall after learning of the abuse claims, according to the report. Both of them were informed of the allegations by the FBI, which repeatedly warned the White House the domestic violence accusations were preventing Porter from getting a full security clearance. McGahn also reportedly received a phone call from one of Porter's ex-wives, but took no action. Porter, who resigned Wednesday, has denied the claims made by two of his ex-wives who said he subjected them to verbal and physical abuse for years. The White House has come under fire initially for coming to Porter's defense, with Kelly and Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders among those to praise his character Uh. and job performance, and she didn't do her press secretary briefing yesterday. She sent out the other guy. Oh, that's that was strange, and I don't know why. Maybe she it was just, his first time ever giving one of those briefings. Yeah, and it was a fiasco. It didn't turn out so well for no. him. Um, but one of the things I, I think this shows everybody that you you can play a part. You can be. I mean, he's Oxford, mm-hmm. Harvard trained, a, a serious professional in the professional world, and chaos in his private life. Horrible, and apparently. Walk that line, but the minute the FBI is investigating and needs to make sure there's integrity in both, because that's how people play you, right? Is mm-hmm. once they have information, the concern was a possibility of that's blackmail. Right. That's how you get blackmailed. He shouldn't have been in there, and apparently right. people knew. Yeah, they're saying a year out, the FBI informed them that this guy can't get a security clearance. So his supervisors knew that there's certain things he couldn't do. Yeah. And so they'd have to adjust the workflow to kind of account for the fact that he can't see certain Did, documents. Not not to throw a curve, but it fits right here so perfectly. Um, Omarosa. Oh, yeah, yeah. She said she would never vote for Trump again. Yeah. <laughs> She served in well, his office. This was on Celebrity Big Brother, where she's a contestant, <laughs> yeah. sitting on a couch talking to some guy, yeah. as yeah. they do on that show, apparently. And the White House came back and said she was fired three times from The Apprentice and a fourth time from the White House. And that was their response to her <laughs> comments that she would never vote for, and yet, that the, te- the tweeting is out of control. But again, he, but he chose her to work for him. So maybe what we're seeing is a pattern of just not choosing. He's lost a lot of people mm-hmm. that have then turned on him. So maybe this idea that he's a good manager, not so good. Maybe a visionary, Hmm. right? Sees visions. Maybe a great tweeter. A a great, you know, many, very moving. He's he's getting stuff done. Concealer. Yeah. Did you see the picture of him climbing up Air Force One and his hair like flips forward and he's like almost completely bald? Look it up. I don't know. It's been comedy gold all this on late night. Yeah, President Trump's hair. He's definitely not. He's struggling with his personnel. He is. And finally, if you've ever wanted to learn the Alpine singing style of yodeling, Mm -hmm. you're in luck. Oh, good. A Swiss university has announced it's going to start offering a degree in yodeling. Switzerland's Lucerne University of Applied Sciences and Arts is expected to enroll a a handful of students for the 2018-2019 academic year. The university plans to offer both a bachelor's and a master's degree in yodeling. Really? Listen to that. That's great. The school official said, as well as having good vocal techniques, students must be taught about different styles and voices to expand their repertoire. The whole yodeling scene will benefit from their new skills. Applicants for the yodeling program will open. You can uh, apply beginning uh, February 28th. I think the one thing. What's the application process like? I'm not sure. Do you have to send in a demo tape? Oh, but you know what? There's just something very soothing about this. 
Really? Yeah. Don't wouldn't you love a brat and you just sit and have a brat and some hot cocoa while this person's just yodeling. No. You realize now that you've said that, I'm going to continue to play this. Mm. Now, Honestly, I love it. The thing that's interesting to me is there's a yodeling scene. As it says, the whole yodeling scene will benefit from their new skills. You mean you mean like there's a there's a there's a whole like it's almost like a nightclub scene. Yeah. It's a yeah. I find that shocking. <laughs> oh no. Well, there's there's a place it, where this is a common it, But it's not a it's probably an older it's probably an older, you know, demographic. I, I don't know if ageism needs to get into this. By the way, I, mean, I would just think it's it's really big in the 60, 70, 80 year olds. Okay. I've got is something it a polka thing? I don't know, maybe. Sounds polka-ish, maybe. I've got something here called Hernia Yodel from Spencer Linton. Would we be interested oh. in hearing that? Oh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah I wonder ahead. what that sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's right before they diagnosed the hernia. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's actually how we knew he had a hernia, because every time he would do that, we'd see the hernia. You got to lift with oh. your knees. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. That's what Grandma used to say. Always lift with your knees. Hey, yeah, um, Yodeling. That's great. Uh, great insights. By the way, th- bring that to the Olympics, for heaven's sakes. The Winter Olympics needs some yodeling. Ooh, Gangnam, Gangnam style. Because they're in South Korea. That's true. Ooh, Gangnam Yoda. Or Ganga, <laughs> Gangnam yodeling. You know, if I were to Google Gangnam Yoda, somebody's put Yoda oh, you know to that music video. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any empty news for us? Any stories we should be covering? I sure, sure do. I mean, you've been talking a lot about food, so I know you're hungry. I'm starving. And uh, a couple of pizza stories. There's a waffle story. But uh, what would it take to get you into a funeral home other than your death? Uh, someone I love's death. Okay. How about pizza? Oh, no. There's a funeral home that is trying no. to rope people in with pizza. No. Trying to get them in there to pre-plan their funeral. And they say that if you start paying for your funeral now, then you save money over the – I mean, you, you're, you're paying for it as you go, as you're still living. Did so you that hear way, what Terry said, what kind of pizza they serve? What's that? Tombstone pizza? Tombstone pizza. Ah, nice, nice. And actually, they, they had this pizza event. They had 100 people show up. Are you – Pizza and pre it. – It's called their pizza and pre-plan event. Okay. Here's the funny thing. We, we are on a campus, and if we throw out a pizza, we, we can get people to anything here on oh, campus. Oh, yeah, for sure. But if I'm about – funerals are expensive. Planning, yes. funeral planning costs money. So you're telling me you can lure people – to go do their funeral planning by just giving them pizza? Well, I think part of their reasoning is that a lot of people are afraid of death or afraid to go into the funeral home to start the, the planning yeah. process. Um, and the pizza party kind of just lightened the mood a little bit. Oh, yeah. So I get it. So you walk into like one of their viewing rooms and there's just some caskets in the middle of the room with pizzas on top of them. And no, you I just think you have to, around. I think you have to lift the lid of the casket to get to the pizza. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's something about eating <laughs> in a funeral home. It just isn't as appetizing. Really? It just seems like to me not as appetizing. I, I wouldn't drink anything either because I'd be afraid that it was somehow the embalming fluids. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you didn't have to go there. You didn't. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, there's another story from a Waffle House. Have you ever been to a Waffle House? I have. I've never been to a Waffle House. Oh, they're very underwhelming. Okay. (laughs) So this is in uh, middle Georgia, a a customer's request for a barbecue sauce. uh, Things turned a little saucy, if you will. Really? Early Tuesday, a man sat down for some food at the restaurant. Willie Edward Drake, 43, of Columbus, asked for some barbecue sauce, according to a Bibb County Sheriff's report. Drake was told the restaurant had none, and then things got spicy, spicy. according to the Sheriff's report. The man then began screaming and insulting the workers, then added, I'll go to jail over some barbecue sauce, the report said. And soon, he did. When deputies arrived, Drake was uncooperative and disorderly, and uh, he was jailed on a disorder- disorderly conduct charge. Wow. Wow. All would you, over a little BBQ. Would you go to jail over some barbecue no. sauce? I wouldn't go to jail for anything, probably. Wow. I mean, something of high moral whatever. Yeah. But I wouldn't go for – by the way, you could not go to jail – yeah. And then go buy some barbecue sauce. There you go. Have all you want. Yeah. I mean, you got choices. They'll give them to you for free. Just go to a Chick-fil-A or something. Just go to a Chick-fil-A. Speaking of which, yeah. so I've never – I mentioned I'd never been to Waffle House. Yeah. But uh, there is this new establishment. Lo- yeah, I think it's local. I don't know that it's national, but they're one of our sponsors. Awesome. And uh, we want some ideas for what we can do for Valentine's Day. Why not take them to the Awful Waffle? Darling. I remember bringing you to this restaurant on our very first date. And now that we're celebrating our two-year anniversary, I wanted to bring you back and share this poem I wrote for you. Your eyes beam brighter than a thousand suns, the light of which never dies, the pools of which never run dry. Your sweet embrace feels heavenly, and there's no place I'd rather be enveloped by perfection. With inflections of Welcome to the Alpha Waffle Gladys, you still work here? You still eat here? Ugh. Uh, what do you want? Gladys, we'll take two Texas plaid piles A bucket of pickle brine swine Two hashed potato platers And a gallon of your pulpiest OJ Coming right up in two shakes of a pig's tail Oh, good old Gladys Some things never change Like my love for you, my widow wummy waffle. I love you too, buttercakes. (laughs) Oh, darling. The awful waffle. Serving you the same breakfast from when they opened their doors 20 years ago. Literally. Many of us are familiar with the famous Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, which showed the kids who exercise self-control often have more success in life. What you probably didn't know is that researchers have been doing that same experiment on children for the past 50 years, and the results actually may surprise you. Children today are actually better at delaying gratification than any generation that has come before them. Here to speak with us today is the man who compiled 50 years' worth of data on the issue, John Protzko, who is a cognitive scientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research is focused on the development of intelligence. And, John, we're honored to have you here. Thank you for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. This is such an interesting thing because uh, a lot of times I think it's just generational. We always think the younger generations just aren't cutting it. You know, they don't have the discipline we used to have. But apparently, according to your research, they may have more. Uh, yes, indeed. We we seem to always be thinking that that the children of the day are somehow inferior to the way that we were. Uh, and yeah, we're starting to see evidence in a couple of domains now that it's it's false. In fact, it's reversed. That's amazing. Because again, our our head is so against it. Talk about uh, about the delaying gratification. Um, what do you think is really happening? Why are we getting better, and why are our children better at it? So, I at the moment, I can't speak to the reasons why it's getting better. Um, the, the problem is it's just too new to understand the reason. <clears throat> so, for example, we've known that uh, IQ scores have been going up over the decades. We've known this for about 30 years now. This is what's called the Flynn effect. Um, so it's been over 30 years that we've known this, but we still don't have a definitive answer to why it's happening. Mm-hmm. And if in 30 years we don't have a definitive answer to that, um, a couple months of me discovering this pattern, it, it's just too early to find out. But I would say whatever reason we have for increasing intelligence are probably acting similarly on um, children's ability to delay gratification. That's interesting. Now, you um, did you perform the exact same uh, test? Did you perform any tests, or did you just do analysis of data? Uh, this is mostly analysis of data, data that's been done over the past 50 years um, by different labs from really around the world. It's 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 really um, and maybe explain the the test. Some may not be familiar uh, with the whole thing about um, the, the they call it the marshmallow test, but it's really about not taking the marshmallow that was the key. Yeah, yeah. so it's referred to as the marshmallow test. Excuse me, but it also doesn't always involve a marshmallow. So the the standard the standard administration is you give a child an array of treats to choose from and say, okay, pick your favorite. And then the child picks their favorite. And sometimes there are children that even choose broccoli with carrot sticks out of this. So it's not always a, a treat. And then you put two plates in front of them, one with one treat and one with two treats. You say, okay, I have to leave the room to go get something. And if you can wait until I get back, you'll get this plate with both treats. can't wait until I get back. It's okay. Just ring this bell and you can have the one treat. And then the measure that people are interested in is how long it takes them to actually wait until the child breaks. <laughs> so the, the, the experimenter stated out for a set amount of time, 10, 15, 20 minutes, it goes up based on how old the children are. Uh, but yeah, the, the interesting metric actually is how long the children wait. And how long they can wait is an index of their ability to delay gratification. And those times in childhood are associated with very positive outcomes in adulthood, including uh, how much money you make, not going to jail and not committing crimes. Uh, so it's, it's in, there's something going on there between a childhood ability and an adulthood ability. And what, um, what is the average time, do you know, that they can delay? Uh, well, it's been going up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not consistent. Um, the average times generally range between... Um, Four minutes to six, seven minutes. Oh, wow. And that there is a developmental pattern there, too. So older children can wait longer. This test can't really be administered in adolescents or even children close to adolescents because they can just wait too long in order yeah. to do it. So you really need a, 
an age range of about four to four to nine, four to ten is about the age where you can get kids to break. That's interesting. So um, we're seeing these times are, are being uh, they're they're um, they're being able to be extended, and these kids, I guess, then. Uh, we presume, and I guess have seen in the data over time, would have better abilities to, uh, you know, to find careers, to have maybe better relationships, healthier, healthier outcomes. And is there? Do you sense? I mean, is is there anything about technology that might be playing a role in this? Is there anything? Do you see anything about? I mean, if our IQs are going up too, um, it, it seems like. It, Something could be attributable to the to the way we're interacting today. Technology is always sort of being brought up in these debates. It's generally being brought up in the in the argument that kids are worse and they must be worse because of technology. So it's interesting to think that technology might be actually having a positive effect. Um, I'm just not sure that it is, and the reason is uh, a we don't have any good causal evidence for the for the role of technology because it's difficult to restrict kids' complete technology use for years or force kids to use technology for years. So experimentation is difficult in this domain. Uh, also, I think we, we latch on to technology because when we're trying to figure out why kids may be different from us, we look for the most salient things that are different from my childhood versus kids' childhood today or our childhood versus childhood today. And technology now seems to be the most salient uh, but I'm not sure that that means that it's doing the work. Yeah. Because you see Flynn effects in countries that don't really have massive changes in technology. I mean, the Flynn effect has been shown from 1910 to, or 1915, I think, up until the present day. And so there wasn't massive home technology changes in the 20s and 30s. Right. Uh, Poland, for example. So, so technology, is, it'd be interesting if that was the case. Um, but I think it's just we, we pick out technology because it's the most salient difference between our childhood and children of today. Yeah. It almost seems like, too, um, there is this uh, instant there, – there's a bias we have toward anybody that doesn't have enough self-control to go – Two minutes without a marshmallow or whatever. Um, is there is there is there something? I mean, these are kids too, right? I mean, is there? Do we sometimes overextend this idea to to mean more than maybe it does? Uh, which idea would that be? Well, the idea that um, that you know a child that just goes for instant gratification of a marshmallow isn't just being a child. Oh yeah. And that's, I think that's part of the thing that, that gives us this bias to think that kids are sort of the downfall of civilization, that we forget what it's like to be a child. Yeah. Um, it, we can't put ourselves in the mind of ourselves when we were four years old. And, uh, yeah, so kids are just, they're kids. I mean, I, my, my personal belief is that we've sort of been the same for thousands of years, and minus some small improvements that we're seeing in ability to delay gratification and intelligence. I mean, these, though it's interesting that it's increasing, um, the increases aren't massive. Hmm. Right? They are, they're very humble, small, consistent increases in ability, yeah. which is good to see, because if there was a massive jump, then there'd be concerned that well, maybe this isn't something real, maybe there's something that happened in the past. Um, but the fact that it's a slow, steady increase is comforting, but I, yeah, I think kids are just kids, and if a, if a child can't wait two minutes for something, yeah, 
we forget that well when we were four years old we we probably couldn't do that either right. actually based on the data um, that I've been working with we were actually less able to do it than this child is so yeah we, I mean, we also we, there's a lot of things we couldn't do, um, and and eventually, I mean, some, sometimes we might learn stuff. I guess as we get older as well. Do you? Uh, where, where do you take this, John? When you when you think of this research, how does where do you see it going from here, and uh, and and how how is it going to inform the rest of society um, going forward? Uh, so, so I'm an intelligence researcher, and. So the idea, and because I'm an intelligence researcher, I've known about the Flint effect. I've known about raising intelligence for a long time. And seeing this increase wasn't wildly surprising to me. It just sort of, to me, it fell in line with a, a general increasing cognitive ability that we see in other, other places. One thing that we did in this paper, though, is before we analyzed the data, we polled hundreds of experts in cognitive development and ask them to predict what they thought was going to happen. And the majority of experts in cognitive development thought, you know, kids these days are getting worse, and mm. you're going to see a decrease in self-control ability. And that's, that's where I'm taking this research. And so I've, I've started research on, on what, we're, what we've called in the paper the kids these days effect, or this, this knee-jerk reaction to just believe that kids are the downfall of civilization, and trying to understand why do we keep thinking this way. Uh, I, I maybe I'll leave it to better minds to understand why self why the way of gratification ability is increasing. But my interest is specifically why why this thought. I mean, if you go back in history, uh, 2,500 years ago, you see people complaining about children of the day and how they're the downfall of civilization. So it's clearly something. It's not a cultural belief. It's mm-hmm. something that's stuck with humanity for millennia now. Uh, and I'd I'd like to understand why. Why do we have this? Just inherent belief. Yeah, that kids are terrible. It's so. It, it really is. It's such an interesting dynamic. Um, just as we wrap up, John, what would you say to parents um, and you know people that are that have kids that are doing whatever they can to improve their ability to delay gratification? What, what advice do you give us uh, as we parent our children that might help that happen, or also that just might help uh, us to believe more in them? I would say the first thing is to, to have faith in your kids. Um, some of my research in intelligence is on intervention effects and long-term effects of interventions. And so what you generally see is these interventions don't necessarily have very have permanent effects. So don't worry too much about trying to adapt to the next program or the next fad that you see to get your kids a, an upper, uh, sort of an upper leg on on delay of gratification, um, the kids are developing, and there's a, there's a natural developmental process for children, and if you feel like your child is, you know, they can't pay attention and they can't delay gratification, try and remember that they're children, and you probably couldn't either, and it'll be okay. Just do the best you can, and, and don't worry so much about your children. Yeah, relax, relax. It'll be fine. John Protzko, thank you so much for uh, your insight. Again, John is a cognitive scientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and uh, focuses on the development of intelligence. And today, teaching us about the power of delaying gratification. Start trusting in those kids. They probably delayed gratification better than you did. Oh, I don't know. They're on those video games. Yeah, yeah. And look at them. 
They're turning out okay. We will continue the journey straight ahead. A little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Oh, you got to love it. You know, we always think the next generation, eh, they're just not quite. I mean, we always say that they're the, you know, the chosen generation. You're amazing. You're incredible. We say those things. And then in the back of our heads, we're like, man, that kid plays video games a lot. There is no way his brain is going to stay together. Not going to happen. And so we doubt. We start to have doubts. And um, I think one of the dilemmas that we face as parents in this day and age of so much information, we, we can read, we can um, hear more and more examples of what our kids need, what they shouldn't do. We, we know what supposedly good parenting is like. And yet, uh, in the end, I found some of that might be making us neurotic. And really, maybe what we ought to do is is kind of see our role with our children as as a coach, as a mentor, um, and as somebody that can help set boundaries, but also help inspire and motivate. One of the things that I see a lot in my practice with with families is they're there will be a problem. A child will have anxiety, or a child will have. Um, you know, attention deficit issues. And because they've heard about it and they've watched videos and they're, they've been on WebMD and di- diagnosed their child with some issue, they then want to jump on it and get fixing it. And, um, and then they seek interventions and then they get medication and there's fear of medication. And it's a very complicated world. But part of what I'm learning is life is just – it's just about that very thing. It's about learning. We just need to start understanding that none of us came here with our own owner's manual. We didn't know how we run. We didn't know how our children will operate exactly. We don't know what their balance of chemistry versus psychology will be versus experience. We don't we don't know. And so because we don't know, maybe our job ought to be and the paradigm we ought to have about raising our kids would be we're here to be their guide and to help them through this and to just start figuring stuff out. And as a parent, what if we just start learning, actively engaged in learning more and more how to be the parent uh, and how to parent our child? Let's start to learn how they how they think. What do they have a tendency to do in their thinking process? Do they tend to think uh, too much of themselves or too little of themselves? Do they tend to uh, reach out to others? Do they empathize well? And if they don't empathize well, let's see if we could give more experiences to create empathy. Let's ask them more questions about how others might feel. But just slowly start trying to understand it. Instead of thinking that one child, you know, they're all the same, What if we could just slowly start figuring out each kid? And I've seen it with my own children. One by one, they each bring me such a different challenge. One child that I can't get to be quiet when we need to be quiet, and another child that is always so quiet. How do I get the quiet one to engage, and how do I get the loud one to disengage? And amazingly, those might be the two kids that are side by side. 
And, you know, the, the, the quiet one was raised with the loud one. And so the quiet one never needed to say anything because the loud one always would. There's systems going on. There's dynamics going on. And one of the keys I found is we need to actually have interventions, do things, uh, engage with people, but then uh, watch what happens and learn and actively start learning and start figuring out what what really works and what doesn't work. There's something I, I found even in addressing anxiety issues, in addressing focus and attention deficit issues, in, ingre- in addressing depression with people. Um, all you have to do is be passionate about wanting to learn and figure it out. And you can figure it out. And th- the same would be true with diseases or issues or disorders or what have you. If you really want to learn, you can figure out how to improve life in any condition. And I think um, that's that's one of the most powerful things we've got. This goes back to Carol Dweck's book on mindset that you, you either approach your life as, it, as if it's fixed, that there's not much you can change, or as if it's, as if it's a growth dynamic, meaning there's a lot you can improve. And if you approach things as fixed – then life becomes a lot more pressureful. It's pressurized. It's just intense. You got one shot and you were either born with it or you're not. And if you're not, too bad. You know, you're good or you're bad. You're right or you're wrong. You're rich or you're poor. Mm, You're set. That's the fixed mindset. There is a better mindset, I think, for all of us as parents, and that is to be thinking of our children as constantly able to improve their own condition, constantly able to, to make things happen. And if we could instill that idea into our child by constantly trying to improve conditions, not perfect them, perfection I wouldn't be shooting for, uh, but if we, could, if we could be pushing harder and harder for the growth and um, learning, and not even them pushing, but us learning more about them. So many times I'll have a parent that comes in that is so frustrated with their kid because they just don't know how to do certain things. And yet they're kind of bragging about how good they are. And I always ask them, well, if you're so good, why can't you relate to this child? It's because you now need to learn how to relate to this child. That's why they're so hard for you. Something being difficult, someone being really complicated and and hard to handle is a sign that you need to learn some new things. So as parents, let's start trusting that our kids are here to grow, that they have the ability in them. And that honestly, let's take the latest data that says they're a lot better at delaying gratification or they're somewhat better at delaying gratification than even you may have been as a generation. So there's hope there, folks. There's a lot of hope. And uh, that's, that's what we try to do on the show is bring you more hope, more information, the latest research, and hopefully a little uh, just insight and light on the side. We will continue up next to uh, do a little more empty news and then a wrap-up of the show and, and, and tee up the new, uh, not the new, it's old now, but screen cleaning. We're going to help you launch your weekend. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, that's the moseying music that we use to mosey along. And uh, let's get to some empty news before we uh, mosey away. Jeffrey? So, uh, do you hear voices in your head? Every day. What was that? Huh? Hmm? Who? Yeah. 
So apparently hearing hearing voices may not be a sign of mental illness. Sweet. But it might actually mean that it's a clue that a person's brain is simply well-tuned to many sounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some people might call that selective hearing. Yeah. Some might. Yeah. Some might call it other things. <laughs> a new study finds that healthy people who hear voices have differently wired brains that find speech patterns in other sounds. Researchers from uh, Durham University in England studied brain response differences between two groups of people, those who have experienced hearing voices, auditory verbal hallucinations, and those who have never mistaken other sounds for speech. Participants underwent an MRI brain scan while listening to hidden speech sounds known as sine wave Speech, sine wave speech to the untrained ear would sound something like bird song or alien type noises. To the trained ear, one can hear simple sentences. Researchers found that less than half of those with typical listening skills noticed the hidden speech while 75% of the voice hearers picked it up. It suggests that the brains of people who hear voices are particularly tuned to meaning in sounds. That makes sense. The authors believe this shows that the brains of voice hearers are more perceptive yeah. to the hidden meanings you're just, in sounds. Your brain is just like your eyes might make up something. You, you see an illusion, but it's not a real illusion. It's just – it just looks like an optical illusion. Eat pizza for lunch. Yeah. So I don't know why, but I've, I'm going to probably go get some pizza now. Anyway, mm, that's um, weird. Uh, because this is Friday, we turn the time over to you, and you take over the third hour with screen cleaning. What's it's up a big on the show. show? You could watch the Olympics, nah, I guess. Tonight, yeah. Um, or you could do like a split screen. In fact, one of the lists that we're going to be talking about on the show is shows that are okay. They're good enough to just have on in the background. And we've got an yeah. interesting term for that. Uh, we're also going to be speaking with Rod and Donna Gustafson about hidden gems. Ooh. I'm always looking for the next hidden gem, a movie that I'd never heard about or didn't know enough about, but I just love. That's so good. Sounds good. Screen cleaning straight ahead, folks. And that's it for me. I'll be back Monday. Keep listening. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Jack and Jill, Grease, Rocky Horror Picture Show. What are you doing, Jeff? Hmm? Oh, oh, hey, Cole. <laughs> I'm just uh, compiling a list of movies we will never, ever talk about on the show. But by listing them out loud, aren't you technically talking about them? Yeah, I suppose you're right, Cole. You just made my list. What was that? Uh, I said it's time to start the show. Oh, that's what I thought. Welcome to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Jeff Simpson, joined here... Joined... Joined? Conjoined? Not conjoined, that's for sure. Here with me... Sometimes it feels like it. I'm not sure how I should take that. Uh, I'm here with Cole Wissinger, who is uh, my partner in crime... And today is all about lists. We're going to be giving you several lists, not just a list of good news, but uh, a list of movies you should check out, a list of movies that maybe you uh, you could probably have on in the background if you have more important things to do, and also a list of movies that uh, 
Cole, I'm going to see how well you know them. Okay? I'm ready. All right. Well, let's do that first. Let's get into our best of news, because here on Screen Cleaning, we like to give you the very best in the movie news. And here it is. In the best immortalization news, we've never had that category before, Stan Lee had his hand or his handprints and his footprints immortalized at the TCL Chinese Theater. Finally, wow. he's 94 years old. Can you believe that? So, not only that, but Disney has officially made him a Disney legend. Ooh. So, he's got a star, he's got his handprints and his footprints on the uh I always want to say the Grauman Chinese Theater or Man's Chinese Theater, but those those aren't the sponsors anymore. Uh, and he's also a Disney legend. So good for you, Stanley. 94 years young. He just lost his wife recently, so that was a bit of sad news. Mm-hmm. But uh, that is a good long life. And it, a lot of movies to his name. Now. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. In the best superhero news, there was uh, there's a lot going on, so it's hard to just cram everything into these few minutes that we have. Uh, in our best uh, princess news... There are a lot of Disney princesses that are going to be making cameos in the sequel to Wreck-It Ralph. I don't know if you heard about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was so excited when I read this. Oh, my gosh. My girls are going to go crazy. I mean, I'm also going to go crazy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think everybody's excited about that. In our best uh, game news, Disney is working on coming out with a hollow chess game. If you've seen Star Wars, this is the little... Uh, hologram chess game that's played with little creatures that kind of knock each other down. Made a little so, cameo appearance in The Force Awakens. That's when, true. Um, Finn kind of like bumps hands on the Millennium table. Falcon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that should be interesting. Might be a, might seem a little outdated, but uh, that'll be funny. Anyway, in our best foreign movie news, this is actually our ripped from the headlines segment today. There is a woman who was kicked off a flight after her emotional support pig became too rowdy. You know, you see people go on planes with their emotional support dogs, but have you ever seen an emotional support pig? Not personally, but I understand it in concept. Yeah, a little unusual. Apparently, uh, they tried tethering the pig to the armrest. Didn't really work. The pig started walking back and forth down the aisles. There was this guy that said, I was terrified because I was thinking I'm going to be on the plane with the pig. So American Airlines, the parent company of U.S. Airways, confirmed it was uh, taken on board as an emotional support animal. And the staff were eventually forced to order the pig off the flight when it became too disruptive. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of these snakes on a plane and snakes in a car trailers coming out with Samuel L. Jackson. And apparently uh, there's a new franchise in Mexico that's going to be pigs on a or pigs in a such and such. But also starring Samuel L. Jackson, who, to his credit, did not hire a Spanish actor to do the Spanish voiceover. He did the whole thing in Spanish himself. Proximamente en cine cerca de ti. Algo apesta a 20.000 pies. Capitán, tenemos un problema. Y solo un hombre puede aclararlo. ¿Qué pasa? Señor... Son cerdos. Lo he tenido con estos cerdos apestosos en este vuelo económico. 
Samuel L. Jackson en Cerdos en un avión Cerdos realmente pueden volar Up next, Rod Gustafson and Donna Gustafson from Parent Previews when we return here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Talk about good. BYU Radio. Welcome to Twisted Tales, stories of the macabre inspired by actual events. Today's Twisted Tale is entitled, Eight-Legged Fear. Mary Abbotton let out a terrified scream when she noticed a tarantula the size of her hand crawling up her foot. In a panic, she called an RSPCA inspector to discover later the hairy arachnid was made of plastic. <sighs> Pacified, she breathed easy again, only to be scared out of her skin by a loud knock at the door. Alarmed at the mysterious late-night visitor, she reluctantly inched her way toward the front door, only to remember her call to the RSPCA. Regaining her composure, she opened the door only to discover it was not an inspector from the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but a representative from the other RSPCA, the Royal Society of Public Certified Accountants. Uh, your capital account is insolvent. Fearing for her life, she slammed the door shut, frantically turned the lock, and ran toward her bedroom, only to trip over a sharp object. Upon further inspection, She saw that it was just her son's Lego set. She sat there, relieved, only to remember she didn't have a son. Her ear-piercing screams led to tears of terror. She reached for her box of Kleenex, only to discover the box was empty. She rushed to the lavatory, hoping some toilet paper could act as a suitable substitute, only to discover the TP was one ply. Reeling in horror, she threw herself into the bathtub, only to discover a tarantula, the size of her hand crawling up her foot. Join us next time for another terrifying edition of Twisted Tales. <laughs> Excuse me. Screen Cleaning proudly presents jolly good shows. Classic films that have stood the test of time and are now being inducted into Jeffrey Simpson's prestigious video library. Most Americans know that we Brits enjoy our tea, we are simply mad about our football, and we conduct ourselves with dignity. However, Americans may not be aware that we also possess a sophisticated wit. Case in point, this month's selection for jolly good shows... Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It is truly a comedy classic of the highest order, and the American viewer will be excused for not grasping the subtleties and dignified manner in which the classically trained thespians carry out their masterful scenes. 
Let us observe one such scene. Who are you? We are the knights who say... Ni! No, not the knights who say ni. The same! Who are they? We are the keepers of the sacred words. Ni, peng, and ni wom. Those who hear them seldom live to tell the tale. We shall say ni again to you if you do not appease us. Well, what is it you want? We want a shrubbery. The scene continues following the procurement of said shrubbery. We are now no longer the knights who say ni. We are now the knights who say Therefore, we must give you a test. What is this test, O oh knights of knights who till recently said ni? Firstly, you must find another shrubbery. Not another shrubbery. Then, when you have found the shrubbery, you must place it here beside this shrubbery, only slightly higher, so you get a two-level effect with a little path running down the middle. Good show, old man. Or, for you Americans out there, man that is funny. We shall return in a month's time to reveal our next inductee into the archives of Jolly Good Shows. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for Maze Runner The Death Cure on BYU Radio. This is the third installment of the Maze Runner series and another teenage dystopian society film. When will it ever end? I admit I did not see the second Maze Runner film, but do I really need to? Thomas, played by Dylan O'Brien and his gang, are trying to rescue some of their friends from being taken by Wicked. So they take a whole train car, and they still don't get everyone. Thus begins this film that feels reminiscent of all the other dystopian films, Fight the Big Bad Government Who's Keeping Us All Down. Despite being an okay action film, there have been too many of this same story recently. Just because all the books made money doesn't mean they all need to be made into movies. The theme is getting tired, and that makes even what could be a good movie just too much to take. I did like the fact that the movie just gets right into the story and doesn't worry about reconnecting with people we already know. I did like some of the action in this film, but the plot got predictable, and I knew what was coming as the story went on. I didn't read the book, either. There was one good plot twist at the end, though, that piqued my interest. If you're considering taking kids to the film, you'll want to know that it contains a lot of action with guns and hand-to-hand combat. There are people that are kidnapped, and there is some blood shown coming out of wounds. Also, those who are infected have some veins coming to the surface of their skin. There are a few battle scenes as the city is under siege, and officials shoot into a crowd, and zombie-like creatures attack people. Maze Runner The Death Cure is rated PG-13, and I'm giving it a C-plus grade. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Mm. Enjoying that sandwich? Hey, where did you come from? I moseyed on over here when I noticed your mom went to the restroom. Say, that sure looks good. Enjoying it? There's something in it. I can't quite put my finger on it. That something is called radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness. Hey, wait, isn't that an acronym for rodent? <laughs> Where'd you learn such a big word, son? I'm a girl. Of course you are, Susie. 
My name is... Radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness, or to use your word, rodent, is the newest product from Cosi Carne. The genus Nectomus is fed a strict diet of donated chicken parts and injected with serums with names this high school dropout can't pronounce and that you wouldn't find all that interesting anyway. Then, after a brief trip to Uncle Butch, the Nectomus is processed with care in an occasionally USDA-supervised facility before he's shipped directly to restaurants all over the Midwest. I think I'm gonna be sick. Oh, it's perfectly natural and quite safe. Just ask Dr. Tribbiani. I highly recommend radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness for all diets. I'm pretty sure that was just your voice dubbed over Dr. Tribbiani's. <laughs> what are you, my lawyer? Now, if you're not sure whether it's safe to eat, just remember this saying. If you sense a foreign crunch, it'll make for a great lunch. Hey, get away from my daughter. Whoops, gotta go. Rodent, the tasty new product from Cosi Carne. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. I'm speaking with Rod and Donna Gustafson from Parent Previews, and uh, they just finished uh, giving us their reviews for Dunkirk and Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. And now we want to continue this theme of lists that we have on the show here today. You know, I'm always tickled whenever I find a movie that I knew nothing about and I've discovered for the first time, and it blows me away. And Rod, you and I have talked a lot about this, about going in blind to see a movie. So I'm curious to know, we we have a few minutes here, and I was hoping that the three of us could each share two films that we would consider a hidden gem, a movie that uh, either has been forgotten or people just don't know about. So Donna, why don't we start with you and your two picks? Okay. Well, I... I went with something lighter because of being summer, so I thought I would pick a couple of ones that I thought were fun. So the first one I chose was Secondhand Lions. This one may not be entirely forgotten, but it had a really short run when it was in theaters, and I felt it deserved more attention than it got. So Secondhand Lions is a story about a young boy who gets ditched by his negligent mother with a couple of bachelor uncles. They're actually great uncles. They're played by Michael Caine and Robert Duvall. Oh, those um, are great uncles. Yes, they are great <laughs> uncles. And and much older than Haley Joel Osment was when he played in this film. He looks like he's about 13 years old in the movie. And he gets stuck with these uncles who are really not interested in him. But he's had no male role models in his life. And so as the three of them form a relationship, they become the parent that he doesn't have. Because, like I say, his mother is really not involved in his life. And these uncles provide what it is to be a man. And it's, it's a fun adventure because... As he gets to know these uncles, they have a crazy, ridiculous past, and he's not sure that it's true, but it helps him to sort of find himself. It's a really warm, heartwarming film. And a wonderful movie to show the influence of, of elderly people, your, your grandfather, your great uncle or whoever in your family. Okay, so that's your first pick. Actually, let's do this. Rod, why don't you give us one of your picks and then I'll do one and we'll circle back again. 
Okay. By, the, by the way, the best part of reviewing movies for 25 years is exactly what we're doing today, the hidden <laughs> gems. So the one I would like to bring up is a movie called Avalon by Barry Levinson. Uh, this came out kind of in the earlier days of my movie review, reviewing career in the uh, early 90s, I believe it was. This is a wonderful story about an immigrant who comes to the United States and all of the wonderful, wonderful things about coming to the USA and the opportunities it brings and everything else. But then as they pull their money and they bring over other family members and that type of thing, reality starts setting in. So it's also about the challenges we face and not even just the challenges of, of moving countries, but the challenges of affluence. And, uh, and then one of the things I love about this movie is television plays a big role in their lives because they wind up running an appliance shop that sells televisions and then um, how television influences their family and starts to kind of detract from some of their family pr traditions. A lovely movie. So Avalon, always one of my favorites. So both of mine, and I, I haven't seen that one, Rod. I'll have to check that out. Uh, both of mine are all about fun. You've probably heard of Forrest Gump and Back to the Future um, and uh, maybe even Castaway. But... Mm -hmm. My film is a Robert Zemeckis film that was actually his first feature film, a little film called I Want to Hold Your Hand. And ah, okay. it's, it's very similar to that thing you do, except it preceded it. And it's about this group of kids who are trying to get to the Ed Sullivan show to see the Beatles make their very first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And so they're are a few girls that are in this group, all of whom are very excited for different reasons to see the Beatles. And there's also a group of guys that, that tag along who are maybe not as excited for various reasons. And it's it, what it does perfectly is they never actually show the Beatles. So the way that they portray the Beatles uh, in the film is just so clever and obviously within their budget. And this show is just all about fun. I do remember there being a little bit of language, but it's kind of like uh, American graffiti in that you you bounce around from character to character to see what they get up to throughout the night. And there are various mishaps and just a clever, small, cute, fun film. I want to hold your hand. You oh. have me curious. 1978, that's the year I graduated high school. I've got to check this out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Donna, what's your second pick? Okay, my second pick is The Court Jester. So this film is starring Danny Kaye. Now, he's kind of one of those rubber chicken actors who did, you know, just the funniest things with his body and his face. Quite quite a famous man who your children may not be aware of because he is one of the oldies. Anyhow, he plays... I, normally, I don't go for really all-out silly. This is really all-out silly, but it's clever silly. It's really fun. He plays a court jester who goes in to infiltrate a um, a kingdom that has where the the proper person for the throne has is a baby, and he's been usurped by his older uncle, and so he is there sort of as a spy. But of course, he's clueless and he doesn't have any talents except for his comedic abilities. So he's supposed to be there to 
to take over the kingdom. And, and of course, he is bumbling his way through it. One of the fun things about it is he's put under a spell by an evil witch. And whenever you snap your fingers, he goes from thinking he's a hero to being his normal self again. And they play this gag between having accidental finger snaps happening. So at the worst of times, he's suddenly this very cowardly character. And then, it, you know, they snap their fingers and then suddenly he's the hero again. It it's it's just a really fun ride, crazy, silly stuff. Your kids may have watched Mary Poppins. They will find the younger mother in that film. She stars in this. Her name is Glennis, Glennis Johns. Johns. Oh, yes, yeah, I got so, it right. <laughs> okay, and then Angela Lansbury, a very young Angela Lansbury, plays the beautiful princess in this film. And your kids may know her as the voice of Mrs. Potts in oh, Beauty yeah. and the Beast. Yeah. And, you know, I believe that is on the AFI list of 100 greatest comedies of all time. Well, there you go. I'm not crazy for thinking it's a fun (laughs) film. (laughs) All right, Rod, what's your number two pick? Oh, man, that went for the serious ones. The Mighty. I don't know. Have you ever seen The Mighty, Jeff? I have, actually. Yeah, a lovely, wonderful film. I just, first of all, there's the soundtrack by Sting that is just, I I really enjoy listening to the music in this movie, but what a great story. We don't see many um, powerful movies about positive role models in teen characters. And this one has two teen characters that are just incredible. It's about a, a boy who is, he's a, he's a real big guy and uh, he's just, he's got some learning challenges. And then this, this other boy moves in next door to him. He's this little stra- scrawny kid and he has mobility challenges. And so the two of them get together. Of course, they're both picked on and bullied and everything else. And the two of them get together to form this this one incredible person i know that sounds strange but they just the the big guy actually carries the little guy on his shoulders and and uh, it's just a wonderful heartwarming story but boy this is a five tissue movie this does not have the usual ending that you may expect in a movie that's made for younger people so parents a little warning on that but you know what sometimes in the right way i think we can use a, a dose of reality and and as I say, there's just wonderful role models in this film. Well, Rod, that uh, made me think of another film, which I'm going to give honorable mention to, but which is not my second pick, which is My Bodyguard, a movie mm, that yes. uh, I think you've mentioned it on the show before. But that's one that you kind of have to look for. And it's an older film, kind of with some of the same themes going on there. Um, yeah. Another couple of quick Honorable mentions. We've mentioned them both on the show before. There's a film called Flipped, which is based on the book of the same name, directed by Rob Reiner. It was a total bomb, but it's actually kind of a cute uh, young romance movie that you should definitely check out. Rated PG. And then also, this one was kind of popular in its day, but now it's all but forgotten. Bugsy Malone starring uh, child versions (laughs) of Scott Baio and Jodie Foster, one of my all-time favorites. So if you want to see a child gangster movie, you should check out Bugsy Malone. And then my actual pick... If you, yeah, if you've seen, <laughs> if you've seen and you enjoyed the film Clue, which which also did not do well when it was released theatrically, you will definitely enjoy a film called Murder by Death. Have either of you ever seen Murder by Death? I no, have not. I do not think I have. It's a Neil Simon script, and oh, uh, if you're good. if you're familiar with the Agatha Christie detectives, you will love this film because. 
it's it's set up very similarly to Clue, where these these groups of people are coming to this mansion to ha- spend an evening, and there's murder or may not be murder involved, and so it's basically a spoof of all these different Agatha Christie detectives coming under this roof, and their host who is played by Truman Capote, of all people, uh, is very eccentric, and he has gathered them all into his home to try to have them solve a murder, which will take place over the course of the night. And if they cannot solve it, he is going to send out letters to the press discrediting all of them. Great cast. Peter Falk. Huge uh, cast. Yeah, Alec Guinness plays the blind butler. You've got um, – And did mentioned... the butler do it? Mm. <laughs> David Niven is in it as well as Peter Sellers who plays yep. a spoof of uh, uh, Charlie Chan, I believe. Oh, OK. This is one of those wonderful 1970s movies now that I'm looking at the cast. They did this a lot in the 70s, you know, like the airplane movies, the disaster movies, where they would have this humongous cast of A-listers all in the same movie. They don't do that much anymore. And it's it's so much fun. I grew up with it. So there are a lot of great one liners in it. And uh, definitely one to check out. I don't think there's too much in the in the way of objectionable material. There may be a little bit of language, but uh, when else are you going to see Truman Capote in a movie with this with the rest of this amazing <laughs> cast? Absolutely true. You have me very curious. I'm going to have to see if I can find this somewhere. Well, Donna and Rod Gustafson, thank you so much for spending time with us and giving us some hidden gems for us to discover over the weekend to help save our Friday and Saturday nights. And I'm excited to go see Dunkirk as well. Well, it was very fun, and I hope you enjoyed Dunkirk. Well, have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be sure to have you both on the show again real soon. We're going to take a quick break. When we return... Uh, Cole and I are going to be sharing another list of films, this one with kind of an unusual title, but uh, it'll make sense here in just a moment, here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, and on this episode, we've been sharing with you quite a few lists, and we still have a couple more to go, and uh, Cole has a, I wouldn't call it a game, but he wants us to share a new list with each other, and I'm curious to know what it is, even though I know what it is. (laughs) Movies. Meh. To watch when you're donating plasma. Okay. (laughs) I grabbed a meh from the Emoji Movie Meh. Because the Emoji Movie to me looks like one of these kinds of movies where I'm probably not going to go see it in theaters um, and I'm probably not going to make a special occasion to see it. But if it's on, I'll half pay attention to it and see what it's like. Okay, so kind of like what it's like when you're donating plasma. There's a TV in front of you. mm -hmm. So you kind of have to watch it anyway. Because uh, you're just laying there with a needle stuck in your arm. <laughs> the alternative names um, I thought about this were movies to stream while you're cleaning your house, movies to have on in the background when you're having a party, but you actually want to talk to the people, so you just need some kind of noise in the background okay. to make it not awkward. Movies 10 years ago that would have been on TBS or TNT, and sure. maybe you stop when you're going through the guide. So we These each kind have of three picks for movies to watch while you're donating plasma. 
Right. So why don't you start? What's what's one of your picks? Okay. So my first one is Mouse Hunt. Okay. <laughs> I have never seen this movie with Nathan Lane, right? Correct. Yeah. So there's there's a certain key to these kind of movies that I wanted to, to latch into. I don't want to have to pay attention to all of these movies, so I need a simple premise and simple comedy. So none of these movies also are going to be like exactly in my pantheon of great movies either. They're just of course not good enough to be watching. Okay. And Mouse Hunt has a very simple plot. You can jump into the middle of it and understand that there is a mouse in the house and these two bumbling buffoons are trying to catch or hunt the mouse. That is the simplest of plots. Mouse Hunt. Also, it doesn't rely on really witty or well thought out dialogue a lot of the jokes are in a physical form sight gags yeah sight gags okay. so it's really easy to laugh at you don't have to be paying attention or plugged in the whole time but if you happen to see something funny it's funny and i think it's a pretty good movie yeah so i i'm gonna in full disclosure none of my three picks i would actually give a positive review for right. but i mean i guess you wouldn't either um, mine, is, my first one is actually one that I was donating plasma when I saw this movie because I never got around to it. And the movie theaters was not going to make a point of spending money to see it. So the only way I saw this one is when I was making money. And that is Man of Steel with Aww. Henry Cavill. Um, I've, I've mentioned this on the show before. I don't really love superhero films where the superhero is indestructible which definitely describes Superman. And there's a scene in the film where he's fighting another indestructible, seemingly indestructible character. And when you say scene, you mean a long, slogging It's like CGI. 20 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't really feel like I needed to. In fact, there was no sound. I could just read the subtitles. So I just laid there, read along with the movie. So I even got some reading done. During this experience. So it was very lucrative and, and very fulfilling in a way, even though I would never watch it again. So that's the trick to this kind of a list is that normally we like talking about movies that we love. Yes. You know, but here we need to we're talking about movies that we liked enough, but none of these are actually movies that we loved. Yeah. Right. Put them on in the background. Don't think too much about them. OK, yep. what's your number two? So when you mentioned the sound being off, this is something I thought of when I was also donating plasma. Um, <laughs> and this this is a movie I don't normally go for movies with subtitles, but I think this is worth watching. King Kong versus Godzilla, the original. Oh, wow. So these movies were all very kind of cheaply made and have a sort of charm to them. Uh, the The actual fights are not with CGI because it was the 50s. It's guys in rubber suits. Kind now, is this a dubbed version or is this a version with subtitles? Watch the version with subtitles because okay. it's going to be muted anyway. So you can just read instead of having to hear the goofy uh, difference in yeah. subtitles. So that, that's the, the shtick I'm going with here is watch it with subtitles. Just read it and enjoy the kind of the show that it gets put on. Also, we love team up and mash up and universe kind of movies. Everyone's giving uh, the universal monsters a lot of flack for trying to create their universe. And everyone's giving yep. King Kong and Godzilla a lot of flack nowadays for copying the MCU. When guess what? King Kong faced Godzilla in the 50s. Really, it's the MCU That's copying true. King Kong. That's a great point. And, you know, movies like Man of Steel and uh, Godzilla versus the Hollywood executives. I don't know. Um <laughs> They're all the same. So you're not – you could jump into any one of those and they'd be pretty much as – it's like, oh, what monster is he fighting now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
Very good. And he's the most recognized. I could have pulled out King Kong oh, or Godzilla versus Mothra, Godzilla versus a variety of other you monsters. You know all the names. That I grew up watching <laughs> because my dad loved these movies. Okay. So my number two pick is actually I, I love the star. I love the stars. Several people in the movie I just love. The movie itself, meh. And uh, it's Bruce Almighty with right. Jim Carrey, yeah. uh, Jennifer Aniston, and Steve Carell. This is kind of the movie that people really started to notice Steve Carell because he steals the show from Jim Carrey. Who does that, right? Um, the the gags in it are kind of hit or miss. I He's not necessarily a particularly likable character. It's about a film – or it's about this this guy who is just down on his luck. He's being passed over for a promotion, and he's blaming everything on God. And so he's confronted by God, who in this movie is played by Morgan Freeman. And basically, he, Morgan Freeman says, well, if you think my job is so easy, why don't you try it out for I don't know how long of a day. It's basically just like Liar Liar and yes, a lot man. of Yes Man – where he can he has these certain abilities but only for a day or so and uh it gets a little crude some of the jokes are pretty funny such as in the case where Steve Carell is being controlled by Jim Carrey so he's basically spouting out a bunch of nonsensical words during a live news broadcast that's probably the funniest scene in the film but again something you could have on in the background take it or leave it meh Bruce Almighty. It's funny to you because that's really your nightmare every morning you wake up and step in front of a microphone. Oh, my goodness. Really, you're just going to end up sounding like Steve Carell. And often I do. (laughs) Which is funny because a lot of people tell uh, Matt Townsend that he sounds like Steve Carell, which I think as well. Anyway, so that was my number two pick. What's your last pick here? My last one. So I also wanted to think about movies where... I want to get through all of them. Again, there's a lot of sequels and a lot of universes uh, to tackle nowadays. And sometimes you don't want to just invest all of that time. Sometimes you want to get something else done at the same time. And so for me, Furious 6 is a perfect movie to watch when you're donating plasma. Because at this point in the franchise, we've gotten into dumb action movie, you know, kind of territory, whereas the beginning ones you needed to pay a little bit more attention to to get, um, you know, Furious, Fast and Furious, the first one, had a decent plot to it, and it's about street racing. Fast Five is too good to want to do something else while you're watching it. Um, even Furious, Fast and Furious, the fourth one, it wasn't, it's my least favorite, but it had so much else going on. You had to catch that it was a prequel and then the uh, Michelle Rodriguez character dies, but she's going to come back. So if you didn't catch that, it's not going to be as effective when she comes back. A difficult to follow mm-hmm. if but, you're just jumping into it. But Furious 6 is the simple, dumb action movie. You get what you expect movie of this franchise. Okay. So as you're trying to tackle all of them to get caught up to when there's a surely a Furious 9 and 10... Six is the one that you can kind of be doing something else during. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I only made it about halfway through Fast Five. Um, But I've heard it's great. But that's the best one. Yeah. Maybe I'll go back and watch it. So uh, before I get to my last pick, I do want to mention and I want to make an honorable mention here of an entire series of films that I actually like quite a bit thoroughly enjoy but the genius of this series is that you could jump in at any point and not be lost 
they're all pretty much the same movie. And I'm, of course, talking about the James Bond franchise because they're always changing up the actor. It's always the same plot pretty much with just a different villain. And they're all fun in their own way. Exactly, yeah. Maybe with the exception of a couple of the Pierce Brosnan films, I would recommend any one of them. Um, But that's not my last pick. My last pick is not a strong romantic comedy. In fact, I don't think I've seen a strong romantic comedy in years. I can't remember the last one I saw. Maybe Return to Me was my last favorite one. Hmm. Um, But this film is a very popular one. It made a lot of money when it came out, and it's called Hitch. And this is one that actually was on in the background as uh, during uh, our hospital stay during uh, when my wife just delivered our, our most recent baby. And we turned it on while we had dinner. There were nurses coming in and out. So we kept hitting mute and we didn't feel like we missed anything. Of course, we've seen it already. But this is a guy that's kind of a relationship coach. And he coaches Kevin James, who is, in my opinion, the best part of the movie, because it's difficult to not find Kevin James amusing and likable. So kudos to Kevin James for making this more of a hit than a miss. But, uh, yeah, it can just be on in the background, and it's kind of a meh movie. If I had to award a single actor to the movies to watch during plasma donating fame of honor, then it is Will Smith. Because There you go. None of his movies exactly jump out at you, (laughs) but I would be fine watching any one of them. Wild Wild West, not great. I still enjoy. Hancock, not great. I still enjoy. I should have put both of those on my list of movies to never mention on this show. Too late. Anyway, that's fun. So a list of movies that you can just have on in the background while you do your chores, while you're hosting people, or while you're donating plasma. That's right. So there you have it. We're going to be talking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation here in just a couple of minutes. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson here with you. And uh, we're going to head over to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jason, two gold. Well, I think Jason actually has a bronze, but uh, two Olympic medalists nonetheless. Spencer and Jason, how are you? We're good. I will take being in the top three. I'm not going to... Look, I'm walking away with hardware. That's all I care about. (laughs) You're not going to pawn it, are you? Uh, I'm not, of course not. I mean, you know, right now things are good, but, you know, down the line, who knows? And this, of course, was in the curling event, right? Uh, yes. By the way, we saw a curling. And, and by the way, uh, my my uh, my compadre today is actually Jerem. Oh, Jerem. Oh. And you guys are boys, so I didn't want it to get awkward. Wow. That's so, why there's total silence. Yeah. Jerem. You know my new favorite baseball team is now, Jeff? The Los Angeles Dodgers. The San Francisco Giants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I just got an I'm electric. What's up, man? I just got an electric shock from the panel when you said that. Yeah, wait a minute. We just it's... witnessed a curling uh, injury. injury. Yeah. Yeah, we just saw it on the internet. Really? Interwebs. How do you get injured in uh, ice sweeping? So one of them stones was rolling on the ice, and the uh, guy backed up into it, fell over, and uh, he's got an injury now. 
<laughs> Thank you, Chris Farley. <laughs> uh, wow. An injury in curling. I didn't even know that I was actually possible. Watched, I'll be honest, for about 30 minutes last night, curling. Really? It was my wow. first Olympic viewing. I, 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 don't, I don't quite, yeah. I, mean, I don't get it either, but I, I'm yeah. fascinated by the fact that they just... I'm fascinated down, by the, the, the just the, the aggressive sweeping. Is Listen, that... I, I want to sweep with that le- same level of aggression in my kitchen. Well, that's get it done. Go, go, go. go. Like you think... someone's yelling at me to do it. You know, sweep more hair. No, 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 no. Don't you Slow think, down. Jeff, that like the, the pressure is on for those people in their, in their houses? There better not be any dirt on their floor. <laughs> They're rolling And stuff if it is, the they'd better clean it up like yeah. super quick. The wife is like, oh, so you can win a gold medal doing this, but when it comes to. Uh, <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> okay. It's like added. It's, it's the pressure that people don't see. Yeah. 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 And there was a brother-sister duo that just stunk from the U.S. last night against South Korea. And I was like, would you? I, I thought they were uh, husband and wife. And I was like, which, which would be harder to manage, doing it with your sibling or with your spouse? Yeah. Like, being Olympic tandem. Ooh. I think it'd be harder with your spouse. Yes. Well, I you- think I can get irrationally mad at my sister. Yes, yes. And it be understood mm-hmm, more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you don't get divorced from your sister. <laughs> Hopefully <True>. not. <laughs> you don't sleep on the couch. Right. Yeah, yeah. you don't uh, don't get well fed. Or Yeah, it would be treated. much yeah. more uh, of an issue. Yeah. You're right. The sibling is better. So, I could do it with my sister, Lindsay. We could be a good curling duo, I think. Would you say that curling is your favorite Winter Olympic sport? I think watching hockey is my favorite. Olympics. Oh yeah. Olympic sport. Yes. I'm at, like I'll watch just about anything that's on. By the way, they're going to exhibition uh snow volleyball. Really? What? I'm I serious. Would, like, I would two watch on two that. outdoor like beach volleyball but in the snow. Like, but you're wearing all of the snow gear and stuff to not freeze to death? <laughs> no, you still have to wear the bikinis. You still got to wear the skibbies. Yeah. That's uh, awesome, right? I would tune into that in a heartbeat. Yeah. Are you being serious on that? Yeah, like that's a legit yeah, thing? It, yes. Wow. They're going to exhibition it. Meaning hmm. it's not an official one yet, but they're going to try it out. The first Olympic sport in which you get frostbite. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I watch, I, I watch the luge, I watch the bobsled, and I'm like, this is insane. They're going so fast. Like, they could literally die. I but, like the ski jump stuff. Oh, oh yeah. The ski jump, that, that stuff, yeah, I mean, just, it's majestic. Yes, is a good and, word for and it. in slow mo and yes. playing John Williams anthems like we did coming into the city. yeah. How about the moguls? I'm like, does everyone have knee problems that does the moguls? Like, why would you do the moguls? And you know when they started out before they got to be professionals with this, you know they're constantly hitting themselves in the face with their knees. <laughs> I mean, you knew they were. <laughs> hey, now admit it. Whenever you uh, watch the bobsled event. You, you know you're just wondering, okay, when are they bringing on the Jamaican team? Yeah. Where's John Candy? <laughs> Aww, I met the real-life coach uh, really? in Park City one, one time. Really? Uh, going up there, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He was cool. He was cool. I can't remember his name. I'm looking it up. Okay, so any, any Olympic predictions? It's all mm, pretty much the same every I time, isn't US it? I think the U.S. will have a lot of medals because we care. Speaking of Olympics, I think I accidentally just started an indoor walk on my Apple Watch. Uh oh. Do you yeah. need to leave? I got to get my steps in. Um, what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation? Today is a fun one. Uh, BYU beat Santa Clara last night.
So we'll discuss Woo-hoo! how important that was for the rest of the season. Or was it? Is Dave Rose underappreciated? Is TJ Haas going to score in double figures like he has been in the last two games? Hmm. And we'll talk to Dalton Nixon in studio. Yeah, is, Steve Cleveland will also join us. These are all good now. questions, and I don't know the answers to any of them. And Kyle Collinsworth gets a contract with the Dallas Mavericks. He's going to buy a kale farm. He is not. He's, but he could. He's <laughs> really into nutrition, so now he can... Uh, I can buy all the kale his heart desires. Loaded weekend. Men's volleyball starts conference play. They were in action last night. Women's hoops holds their opponent to 19% shooting. Mm. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. We have a ton to cover. Sounds like a great show coming right up here on BYU Sports Nation in just a few minutes with Spencer and, or I <laughs> did it again, Jerem and Jason. Ah. <sighs> Oh, goodness. Well, Cole, I think we've got time for it. We've got one more list that we need to do, and it's a little bit of a challenge for you because I'm going to give you 30 seconds uh, in uh, this segment that we're going to call Bruce Willis by the Numbers. Bruce Willis has made a lot of films with a number in the title, and I'm not just talking about a sequel, but uh, he has made a lot of films that have numbers in them. And I'm going to give you 30 seconds in 10 seconds here to name as many of them as possible. And then I will go through the list to refresh your memory. Are you ready? Yes. No cheating. 30 seconds starting now. So two are easy. The Sixth Sense. Fantastic movie. We already mentioned Haley Joel Osment earlier. Um and then the fifth element, one number below that, also PG-13, really cool sci-fi epic. A lot of people are comparing Valyrian that's coming out this weekend to it in its world building and kind of out there-ness. Ten seconds. I was expanding because I think those are the only ones that I can remember. Since you're not <laughs> counting sequels, I can't just uh, spout out some of those. Okay. Okay. So – I've been thinking about this for a, for a long time. I don't know why. But I just realized that he has so many films with numbers in the titles. Are you ready for this? All right. Uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. One is in the title. One. Okay, okay. Die Hard 2, Die Harder. But the, see, I didn't mention – yeah, I knew that he was in about four or ex- five or six Die Hards. The Expendables 2. Aww. Red 2. And we're not counting Look Who's Talking 2 because it's spelled T-O-O. T-O-O. Uh, we also won't count Dart Die Hard 3 because it's Die Hard with a Vengeance. Four Rooms, The Fifth Element, The Sixth Sense. I'm going to count lucky number seven. See, so you're, got you're tricking through, me, Jeffrey. He's I got thought one of some through of seven right there. And then we skip eight. We go to the whole nine yards. Then oh, we go to yeah. the whole ten yards. That, mm-hmm. We skip 11, and we've got 12 monkeys and Ocean's 12. Then we skip a few more, and we've got 16 blocks. He's also been in Catch.44. He was on that 70s show. And it's rumored that he's going to appear in Die Hard Year One. So there you go. Apparently, he only does films with numbers in them. Well, as you know, uh, we like to end each show with our... Panning for Good segment, and this is a good one today. Panning There's for Good. There's good in them there hills. <laughs> the family Orsillo had their home burned down recently. They lived there for 26 years, and they have a 34-year-old son with Down syndrome who avidly collects and watches and talks about movies, lost them all in the fire, well, his sister got took to Facebook and 
pled with people to step in and help out because he really cares so much about these films. And now he has even more movies than he had before. People really came together and donated lots and lots of movies. And this man is just pleased as punch. And that's our Panning for Good segment today. It's movie-related, and we try to give you only the best movie news here on Screen Cleaning. 